0: to off the box garrett and john here john yeah super excited about this episode Ooh, i know why do you
1: dude it's the 20th episode really yeah Oh, by quick i right time fly- well uh, you're right the doctor's more exciting than the 20th episode but this is still pretty exciting
0: no it is really exciting it is yeah time flies though i oh you know before we started this thing, it was, you know, a little nerve-wracking for us. Are we even going to be able to get people to come on the show? Yeah. So the fact that we convinced, we got dragged, 20, right. somehow got 20 very high-level professionals in their service lines yeah. to come on this show and talk to us and the audiences, I'm going to say remarkable. The
1: fact that you and I... We're not maybe the most reliable people and, uh, you know, but the fact that we 20 weeks, 20 weeks, we didn't miss an episode.
0: That is true. I mean, I. (laughs) That's pretty good. I mean, I go weeks without checking my mail. Do we still get the mail? I do. (laughs) I think at least every two weeks. I think, uh, but but part
1: of it, uh, you know. Doing this for 20 episodes is way cool. I think I consider myself one of the luckiest people on the planet to be able to do this. Um, but part of why we do it is
0: is for, I mean, people listen to us. It's incredible. Yeah, that's the weird part for me still. Yeah. People actually listen to this. I, I, I just assume it's more for the guests, but uh, apparently we're a little entertaining as well. I, I guess
1: I, you know, it's it's so cool and so humbling. I mean, there we'll be in the ER and we'll see, you know, typically an EMS crew walk by. Sometimes I don't even recognize them, and they'll just be like, "Oh, hey, dude, that podcast was really good last week.
0: Who is that guy?" Seriously. <laughs> no, it's great, and and you know, luckily for us, we're learning with the audience with a lot of this stuff right. that we go into, um, right. You know, uh, what we've really learned is that, you know, we had a long career in EMS, and we know EMS really well. Mm-hmm. We can, you know, probably top of our game with EMS. There's a lot of stuff outside of EMS and healthcare, though. Yeah. And we're learning along with everybody else that's listening to these podcasts.
1: You know, we've even, honestly, uh, you know, we've even had some of, some of our doctors that have come on have said in the pre-show, said, oh, yeah, I listened to some of the episodes. Like, I learned a lot from this episode, or, I uh, you know, it was really cool to hear this other doctor speak. And I'm like, Wait you're
0: you're listening to <laughs> yeah yeah it's impressive too i think um you know as it's, it, it's where they all know each other too just the physician world so small yeah when someone comes on like oh i didn't know you had <laughs> you know dr silka on there you guys right. actually got dr silka <laughs> i go oh it's john's friend i mean yeah, of course oh well i got lots yeah. of friends apparently no it is so cool when they listen to it and they get a lot out of it as mm-hmm. well um where you think you know they're they know their service line really well? Maybe they don't know much about ED or ortho or uh, neurology. Um, yeah, so it's just cool that yeah. we are actually able to get some good information out to a lot of different people.
1: Yeah, no, I, I and I think it's I'm, it's enjoyable now. I think the first few episodes, if anyone's done a <laughs> podcast, the first few, I was hyper vigilant, so worried about how to keep the conversation flowing that I don't, I never enjoyed it because I was too busy thinking about it. But now once we
0: plug in, I just let my mind. Yeah. Like, yeah. I used to, you know, have a piece of paper down with a bunch of questions I'm going to ask during the podcast. Right. And I think it just makes you, it distracts you from that conversation. Totally. Where all you're doing now is waiting for your turn to talk. Mm-hmm. Um now it's just, you know, I try to just have a rudimentary knowledge of the person and the service line. Yeah. Um, just kind of get the, you know, brain stimulated flowing a little bit, but no planned questions and just see where the conversation takes us.
1: Right. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm very serious because I know a lot of times when we get done, I, I look at them and I say, please come back because every time we get done, you know, you know, at the end of the day, everything's digested. I've thought about our podcast and I go, oh, I didn't ask that. Oh God, I didn't ask that question. And then I'm like, Oh, you know, it'd be a great question.
0: And it's over. Yeah, but a lot of times you can't really preplan that because you, you don't can't. really know where the conversation is going to go or what our guest is going to be really excited about. Um, it just kind of pop up. And maybe as we go on, uh, we're we're getting better at every episode, I think. Um, so maybe soon those questions will just pop so much faster in our heads and I think so. There'll be anything kind of left on the table after the interview. Yeah. And, and if I, it has to be a six hour interview, it has to be a six hour interview to get our questions answered.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um uh, what was, uh, rats not even I lost my train of thought on that, but um let's
0: talk about Dr. Kittle tonight. Absolutely. So you know Dr. Kittle. I do. I personally, you used to work with her.
1: Yes. So she worked on an ambulance and I'm sure she'll get into, you know, her background and history. So I met her, uh, through friends that were in the ambulance and we played poker together and we were in a band together and, you know, birds of a feather all flocked together. So we've, uh, we've gone to punk rock shows together. We did a, uh, a road trip together. Um, she's super cool. I'm excited to have her on today.
0: Nice. Are you going to be able to stick with, uh, Dr. Kittle the whole episode you think or is that kind of just a automatic first name going to pop in there?
1: Uh you know, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm gonna refrain from the normal name. It's it's a total it's a total PG name that the, our group of friends, you know, call and some other inside jokes. But uh, I'm sure that I'll accidentally call her Jesse a few times rather than Dr. Kittle. But
0: uh, okay, see we'll see. Goes. I believe you. Know. I you know. I think you're just gonna be hypervigilant and focused. I th- and I know you can do it. When you said that, I thought
1: you, am I gonna be able to keep up with her mentally? I'm like, no, absolutely not, not even a little bit.
0: Now, and I am really, really intrigued. I mean, you you know brought this up. You've been talking about this for weeks, dude. Two months ago, I th- you her uh, name months. was on the board. Yes, that's um, right. And I, I thought, like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Uh, hypnosis. Uh, don't lie. You've been asking about And this. I started thinking about more and more. I'm just like, <laughs> hypnosis, huh? Mm-hmm.
1: So cool. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm more excited for the podcast or for you because you finally get I don't to- know. I just
0: feel like my jaw is just going to be like on the floor for like a majority of this podcast, just taking in all this information. Um, yeah. Hopefully, um, we can get down on some like pathophysiology yeah. and how hypnosis actually affects mm-hmm. the brain and the body. Yeah. It'll be really cool to learn.
1: I think, you know, it's weird. With some of our other doctors that I, I at least had a rough idea. I mean like orthopedic surgery. Okay, there's bones involved. And I get really excited because I just have no idea what we're going to broach today. It's not that I'm not excited. I'm just – I have I have no idea what we're going to talk about other than hypnosis. And, and I, I don't know what's going to go. I've never had this conversation.
0: I'm excited. Um, I don't know. No look. Jump in. Let's do it. Let's just dive in. Let's go grab her. Perfect.
2: What's
3: Dr. Jesse Kittle and I'm here to talk to y'all about being off the box.
0: Wow, that's pretty good.
1: I think we need to find new lines of work. She's better at this than we are. <laughs> really is, huh? <laughs> so, um, are you hiring for like an assistant, Jesse? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, we have Dr. Kittle here. Sorry, I <clears throat> should have said uh, Dr. Kittle. But uh, thanks for joining us here.
3: Absolutely happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I know we mentioned this in the pre-show, but this is our 20th, uh, 20th episode. This is really special for you.
3: It is special.
1: Yeah. Now, a lot of times there's some questions about whether or not our guests are my friends, but in this case, I would actually, I would say once you get a speeding ticket together in Wyoming, you're (laughs) friends.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's how we, uh, how we know each other.
1: (laughs) Dr. Kittle and I knew each other from our EMS days. And so it's really cool when you see somebody who you worked with and now they're a doctor. So, uh tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, how would you how'd you get here? What do you do? Uh we're we're curious.
3: Yeah, so my my evolution to medicine was not typical. So I started as an undergrad in molecular biology at Santa Cruz.
1: That's totally untypical so far.
3: Yep. No. So <laughs> right. I was uh you know, planning to go into some kind of science research, and maybe cancer biology research mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so I completed my degree and was uh, working as an animal trainer and, you know, at the Long Marine Lab doing mm-hmm. oh, yeah. marine mammal training. And um, at that point was trying to figure out what to do with the next stage of my career. I wanted more science education. I wanted to go back to school. But I wasn't really sure about what to do. I didn't know that I wanted to go to medical school yet at all. Mm-hmm. I was kind of squeamish and I didn't really know if I could deal with blood guts and gore <laughs> and emergencies. And, you know, was, I was the kind of person that if somebody fainted in the grocery store, like my heart would beat real fast, like, oh, God, what's going on, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so I was like, yeah, probably not cut out for that stuff. It wasn't part of my upbringing to be, you know, brave and bold and run straight into the emergency. So I figured what better place to figure it out than EMT school. Mm -hmm. And so I just signed up and went terrified, absolutely terrified (laughs) about what it would be like what I would find if I could handle it. Um, And so I just went and um, did my first responder did my EMT both in Santa Cruz, sort of as a way to explore whether that was something that was for me. And I loved it. I absolutely loved
2: it. (laughs)
0: Everyone does. You're hooked the moment you do it. Yeah, it is. It's a nice and scary first day. And what am I doing? They kind of scare you with a brand new language you're going to learn. But once you get into it, it's just um, addicting.
3: It was great. I, you know, knowledge is power and knowing what to do in those situations mm-hmm. and being kind of a bossy person in general, I was like, <laughs> this is my element, you know, I, I get to come onto a scene and be in charge and know what to do and feel comfortable mm-hmm. and help someone. It was like, what could be better than that? Right. Right. And, um, so then I, I wanted to become an EMT. I started driving the ambulance, both BLS transport, and then eventually 911 down in Monterey County. Yeah. And, um, you know, at that point I was exploring what to do next and I was really loving the medical care part. I really loved the excitement of it. I loved the partnership and the camaraderie with our colleagues, which obviously EMS is huge. It's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Probably second only to military, I would guess. Okay. And, um, and I didn't know if medical school would be the right thing for me still, but I found that I was getting really frustrated with not knowing how my patients did after I dropped them off. Interesting. And so I would look around the ER and try to find the doctor that I dropped my patients off with and try to ask the receptionist, what happened to that stabbing victim we brought in? What happened to that? Are they okay? Did they go to surgery? Or, you know, what was that person's, why were they short of breath, you know? And they would say, oh, we can't tell you, it's privacy, or we don't know, or why are you asking What patient me?
1: was that are you talking yeah, about? Exactly. That was yesterday. yesterday, we don't know. Yeah, that was yesterday, uh-huh. exactly.
3: And um, And I thought, man, I kind of want to be on the other side of this, you yeah. know, so... At that point, I started volunteering at the ER at Dominican and mm-hmm. also um, picked up actually a social work job because I knew that now I kind of had handled the, the blood guts and excitement and I knew I could deal with that. Okay. I didn't know if I could deal with the social aspect of health, which is huge, right? People oh, who yeah. are, you know, in dire straits because of their social situation, people who are not able to care for themselves when you give them the best advice right. that you have for them. Um, people that are, you know, using a lot of drugs and, you know, intentionally or unintentionally hurting themselves. All of those things, I thought, I really am not comfortable with that. That was like, you know, back to fainting in the grocery store. That was (laughs) my next super uncomfortable spot in life. And um, so I started working at the Santa Cruz AIDS project and needle exchange. And it was sort of like my experience going to EMT school. I loved it. Wow. (laughs) As soon as I had information and I could help people, I was teaching classes on safer injection practices in the local jail. I was, I mean, I was off to the races with harm reduction and I thought it was really the coolest thing, um, you know, to sort of take someone from, from where they are in their process of healthcare, self-care, whatever it is, and just kind of help them get a leg up, Mm -hmm. you know, get one or two steps up the ladder to where they want to be. Okay that's the, that's the whole thing, right? That's all of medicine. That's all of anything that we do for each other as, as friends, you know? Right. And to me, it really resonated. I thought it was going to be again, scary and uncomfortable. And I ended up loving it. Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, um, you know, here I was with this, like I can, I can do the blood gut score emergency stuff. I can do the social work aspect. I know I can do the science because I already had that down from undergrad. And I thought, all right, I think I need to go into medicine.
1: I love that it's – I think so many doctors we interviewed, they knew they were going to be doctors. And
0: for Dr. Kittle, she's like,
1: well, maybe. Let me test this out. Well, maybe. You know, it
0: was yeah. a slow process. No, it it's great hearing process. about that um, going just head first in uncomfortable situations. I'm uncomfortable with this. All right, let's take it on and – yeah, we should, we, have started, on the other side. we should
1: have started this podcast two months earlier, but we were too scared to do it. So, <laughs> 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 and uh, for the record, we're both uh, banana slugs, uh, and they're undefeated in bowl game appearances for anyone that went to a big name school. No big deal. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um,
3: so um, yeah, so after that, I had a little detour because I, you know, I had a couple other jobs, careers going on. I was a nanny. I was this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, decided to open a restaurant before medical school uh, with. Um, you know, with a good friend. And so while I was on the ambulance, I was actually designing a restaurant the Mm -hmm. whole time. So I'd bring my laptop to work and in between 911 calls, which there's a lot of time down, you know, I would um, be in the station looking up countertops and floors and, you know, how to, how many outlets we need per linear foot of counter space for a restaurant, all these kinds of things. That's a thing? Oh yeah. Um, Oh yeah. You'd be amazed. The ceiling tiles are coded. I mean, it has to be every, there's a code for literally everything in building a restaurant It's a lot like medicine in that way. So you go down one little road and there's a (laughs) protocol and there's a rule and there's a, this, and there's a recommendation. And so it was really fun. It was like, you know, I got to learn to be kind of part architect, part restaurant designer. Uh, It was really cool. And so I was doing that on the ambulance. Then when I got the restaurant built, finally, we were about ready to open. And that was when I was supposed to start at Tulane. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you and I took an epic road trip to Chicago <laughs> with another friend to, uh, just to see the country. And, um, you know, that during that time, I went down to new Orleans and asked them if I could have another year so I could mm-hmm. run the restaurant for a year before I left for med school. And right. they said yes. And that was that.
1: And I remember, so there's another podcast you did at Stanford and we can get into where you work now. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> so go ahead and plug that podcast cause it was a good listen. And also I remember them saying that, uh, you, I mean, you're just incredibly talented, and you got into every medical school first time around. Boom! I mean, every school's <laughs> tripping over each other.
3: That's right. That's right. <laughs> Did uh, I get that story wrong? That's 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 perfectly accurate. Um, except that it's the opposite. <laughs> so um, yeah. So the the Stanford. Um, clinical summer internship, um, and podcast. Uh, my, my good friend, Dr. Sarita Kimani, mm-hmm. um, does that podcast. And I do discuss the actual path to medicine with regard to applying and getting rejected right. the first year and, <laughs> you know, all of those things, not knowing what I was doing, applying to med school. Mm-hmm. Um, that was definitely the next big scary thing. I jumped right into it. Probably didn't put as much effort into researching how to do it, <laughs> more just went ahead and did it. And, uh, you know, when all the rejections came the first time around, I was like, Oh, okay. Like this is one of those things you have to find out how to do along the way. So, so I share that story on Dr. Kimani's podcast. Um, and, uh, maybe we can link somewhere where that is if people want to yeah, listen me, to it. Yeah. it's yeah. Um, a good challenge
1: for our 20th episode. Let's link another podcast. I like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: hey, since we plug it, um, a rising
1: tide lifts all boats. I, yeah. I say,
3: So, uh, so anyhow, just, yeah, so that, that I got into all of, all of that, um, epic saga of getting into med school. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I went to Tulane, finished up there, came back to, you know, the Bay area, my, my home stomping grounds to do residency at Stanford in internal medicine. And, um, then I stayed after that. So now I've been at Stanford seven years, four years as an attending,
1: Okay. Now, when you'd mentioned Tulane, uh, you, you're actually the second guest in a couple of weeks that went to Tulane. Uh, Dr. Tahir, one of our ER physicians here. Now, she was saying that down there, I mean, you just see a different type of sickness in that area, yeah. just from the geographic location. Can you kind of touch on that?
3: Yeah. So that, the reason I wanted to go to Tulane was because it's a different type of, you know patient population. It's just a, a different demographic altogether. The mm-hmm. South is, is very different than California, which is the only other place I ever lived. Right. And so it was, you know, post Katrina by many years, um, you know, when I got down there, uh, at least, I want to say at least three or four years, um, but you know, the city had not recovered,
2: right. um,
3: by, by any means. And so, um, you see a lot more neglected health issues down there that you don't mm-hmm. see other places. It was still one of the HIV capitals of the okay. country. It was still, I think the syphilis capital of really? the country. Um, you still see leprosy down there every once in a while. I don't even
1: know what leprosy is.
3: <laughs> it's a, it's actually a, a bacterial infection. It's kind of a similar to tuberculosis, the bacteria, it's like a small mycobacterium. And, um, and it's, you know, causes really terrible disfiguring skin infections. And it used to be, you hear, you've heard about leper. Oh, okay. Yeah. Leper. Yeah. Yeah. So that's from leprosy because it was so disfiguring that people were, uh, you know, just institutionalized essentially to get them away from everyone else. Um, It's actually, you can contract it from armadillos. And so there's armadillos down there and people (laughs) hunt them. So, Anyway, the South is a little different than the well, Bay Area. I mean, I'm
1: not laughing at a negativity. I'm laughing because I'm all, I love learning. I mean, just I mean, this is the United States and yet things are so different
3: yeah. in our own oh, country. Yeah. yeah. And um and of course there's a lot of racial um, disparities mm-hmm. still, of course, in those parts of the country which everybody is aware of. And that translates directly into healthcare disparities. And kind. so um, you know, it's just a really interesting place. When I was, when I was at Tulane, we did a lot of our rotations at the university hospital, which is like the, the charity hospital of new Orleans is very famous. Okay. The building itself got shut down after Katrina, but the patient population moved over to the other interim LSU university hospital. And that's where I spent most of my time as a med student. And it was, um, you know, there were there were days even as a med student before I had any authority or could really do anything mm-hmm. that I just felt that if I hadn't seen this patient today and taken the time to explain to them what diabetes is or what hypertension is or how important it is to take these antibiotics and what they do to treat this infection that you have in your foot or whatever mm-hmm. it was that nobody else would. And this patient probably would go home and maybe even die from this problem. Because you could see that there was a huge disconnect between the information that the doctors were giving
2: mm-hmm.
3: and the way that the patients received the information. And that's due to a lot of, um, you know, just basically a lot of history of, you know, doctors are busy, patients don't have always the, the most healthcare education or health education. Um, And most of the time, doctors don't take time to explain to a patient why they're making a recommendation. And I can say from before I got into medicine at all, that I had a similar distrust with the medical system of like, who is this person? They say, oh, you have this thing, you need to take these pills. Like, how do they really... Do they really know what these pills are going to do? Is this just something they were told to do by some teacher? Right, but like there's no it, why behind yeah, it. Yeah, there was never a why behind yeah. it. And I think when you add socioeconomic disparities or differences and you add education, you know, differences between doctors and patients, you really amplify that, um, that distrust and that sort of skepticism. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And I thought it was... One of the coolest things in the world to be able to sit down with someone and try to figure out what they understood about what we were telling them they had or what they needed to do about it and really get to have a back and forth with them until Mm -hmm. I felt that they were able to understand what was going on and and trust that the recommendation that we were making was actually, um, you know, evidence based to help them and not something that was just kind of off the cuff we think all of you know the world should be on blood pressure medicines, you know. Right. Um, and so it was. It was different, you know. It's. I love working in the Bay Area and at Stanford, but you know, you, you throw a rock, you hit a doctor. You know, <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> I, I don't. I don't necessarily feel like if I wasn't there that day, that nobody would be able to help my patient get from point A to point B. And mm-hmm. in New Orleans, it oftentimes felt like that, even as a medical student. Really. And everybody I worked with was so bound with that mission. All of my mentors, all of my colleagues, when I was down there, we were all just united in this feeling of, gosh, like we really want to help make this situation better. We recognize these disparities and it's like our mission to just help, you know, and it, it just felt really amazing.
1: Yeah, I think you had said that there's a culture. You know, I guess each med school probably has a culture. Like every fire department has a culture. Every police department ambulance has a culture. And you said that culture really – you gravitated to that down there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And um, I learned about it. There's sort of culture of service Mm -hmm. um, and of humility, Mm -hmm. you know, when I – started actually researching the medical schools the second time I applied. Which, <laughs> when you're doing I, it for real. When I, yeah. When I applied for real, I was like, oh, there's actually cultures to med schools, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And, um, and that changed the way that I applied the next year and, uh, realized this place was totally aligned with everything I had done so far with the addition of medical training and thought we're going to get along just fine. So,
1: <laughs> and we did. <laughs> what did, uh, what did you take from working as an EMT? Cause we have a lot of, uh, first responders that listen to this podcast uh-huh. that, you know, want to go to PA school or into medicine further down the road. So what did you take from your days on the ambulance into being a doctor now?
3: Well, I think situational awareness would probably be number one, two, and three.
2: That yes yeah. yeah. You
3: you are not taught situational awareness <laughs> in medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that I think you get really good at because it's a survival mechanism when you're on the side of the freeway and there's, you know, trucks rushing by and you've got a car flipped over and you're trying to keep yourself and your rig and your partner and the firefighters all safe on this scene while you get the backboard out of the back, right. while everyone's looky looing and texting,
2: <laughs> you know what I mean?
3: Uh, trying to take pictures of whatever's going on and you know, yeah. the whole deal of EMS um, you have to learn situational awareness because your life depends on it. And um, that experience does not translate for most, you know, higher education scenarios that a lot of doctors really just go straight through college and right. medical and to the hospital. And, um, and so I think that that's probably one of the best tools that you can mm-hmm. develop. Um, you know, I'll tell a story. There was a – I went to, to Tonga. Um, last year to visit a good friend, and mm-hmm. um, and we were on the plane on the way there, and of course because I'm I'm just one of those magnets.
2: <laughs> is there a doctor on the uh, plane? You know, a couple
3: hours into it, and and I'm sitting there. My boyfriend, it was his birthday. We were on this big trip. We just settled in. It's midnight our time, and we're just oh, going to yeah. do this red eye to Fiji, and um, you know, ten hour flight. We're in the middle of nothing, nowhere. There is literally nowhere to stop. We're, we're halfway up. between L A. and Fiji. <laughs> There's nothing, there's not even a, you got the dolphin, carrier, yeah. you know? dolphins yeah, is exactly. all you got, <laughs> yeah, you like, don't want to like, land on a blue whale. Yeah. For the best. And so, um, you know, so I sit there and he goes, do you have to get up? And I was like, yeah, I have to get up. I mean, not legally necessarily in all scenarios, do I have to get up, but I'm an internist. If right. someone goes down on a plane, I'm getting up, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's one of those things, you know, if, if, um, if I didn't feel that my training, couldn't handle most situations on an airplane. I wouldn't mm-hmm. necessarily, but, um, but yeah, I got to go check it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I get there and there was, um, you know, there's, there's your looky lose, and there's your Ricky rescues, right? Oh. So,
2: <laughs> so, oh, so yeah. um,
3: there was a, there was a Ricky rescue who was already there. And I say that endearingly, but you know, somebody who really, really wanted to help, who thought that he should be involved with this patient who was passed out in the aisle Did he have any on an medical training,
1: or just wanted to help
3: just wanted to oh, help. Oh, okay, fine. Um,
2: good, good. And
3: so, you know, so I get up and I'm assessing the situation and who's already there and like, hi, you know, do you work in, in medicine? What's going on? You know, and stewardess had told me, or flight attendant, sorry, had told me the uh, the story on the way over. This woman fainted on her way back from the bathroom. Okay, so I'm going to check her out, you know, and I see the patient and she's conscious and she's obviously breathing and she's talking, you know, and she looks a little pale, but, you know, we can, we can address her. I would want to figure out what the scene's doing, yeah. but she was okay. And, um, so I want to figure out who else is there. Cause I don't want to step on some, you know, chief of staff of, you know, <laughs> the hospital <laughs> up the road. Right. So, oh, hi, you know, uh, what's going on here. Oh, well, I'll tell you all about it. You know, she fainted and and I think this is what's going on and this and that. I'm like, okay. Do you have medical training? He's like, well, I work in the, oh, he said like, I'll work, I work in the we're gonna have to edit this part. Medical out, device sales. <laughs> no, it was like it was like I work in the in the cath lab. Or I, he was like, I'm a cardiology person or something. Okay. It was like he oh, clearly wasn't a cardiologist.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he works in
3: in the heart lab oh, right, you know yeah. kind of thing oh oh, nice. oh, oh in the and heart like, lab okay
0: the accurate name just yeah. really <laughs> yeah, helps that situational awareness oh, right, so right.
3: maybe i was like ah, that's, i've never heard a cardiologist introduce themselves that way it's interesting i work in the heart type area of the hospital i think and um and, I was, a <laughs> and he's, he's squatting next to the patient and he's obviously a little excited and agitated so i'm like oh okay all right well did you take her pulse? Oh boy! <laughs> and he goes, huh? And I was like, you know what, sir, if I need your help, I will, you'll be the first one I call back, you know, it's like, excuse me. And, um, yeah, you know, can we get a blood pressure cuff over here, please? And, some, you know, and, uh, I mean, it went from there, but, um, anyhow, I think the the situational awareness is something that, in the hospital, you need it in, you know, just in every situation that you're in, it comes in quite handy and it's it's not taught.
1: I think, yeah, Yeah. I I was thinking between the three of us coming from the streets, I mean, you know, when a patient's about to go south and become combative, I mean, it's that spidey sense that I can't explain to other people. I just hope the people listening understand. And I'm going to guess, I'm sure you've seen doctors get blindsided by a patient that just goes, you know, 86 on them. And you're like, yeah,
0: I saw that coming. More (laughs) important than the um, agitated and combative is the vomiting.
3: Oh, yes. yes. Yes.
0: that When you're in the ambulance, you kind of know when vomiting is going to happen.
3: That is true. Get your bag out. When you're stuck in a tiny little box with someone, yeah, you figure that one out real quick. Yeah. That serves me well (laughs) in in the recovery room. (laughs) Yeah. As a a post-operative consultant, I go see patients in the recovery room all day long. Right.
1: well, I think that that segues to, I mean, you, you work for Stanford, so kind yeah. of what do you, you know, what do you do?
3: Yeah, so I'm a surgical co-manager hospitalist, which means I'm an inpatient internist for patients who are coming in for surgery, and mostly orthopedic surgery. I do a little bit of uh, work with neurosurgery and ENT as well. Okay. And so I do some pre-op preparation for patient, for example... Every hip fracture that we brought in on the ambulance, they come to the ER. Um, they generally see, you know, the surgeon, the pain anesthesia team, and a medical consultant to make sure that they're risk stratified and optimized for surgery. Okay. And so I do that job. Um People coming in for elective surgeries or semi-urgent surgeries, like a tumor resection of a metastatic bone disease, you know, a femur resection for um, breast cancer, something like that. I see them as well um, to manage their medical issues while they're there. And then also your bread and butter, elective surgery, hip and knee replacement, shoulder replacement, spine surgery. Um, somebody comes in who has heart disease, has stents in their, you know, in their heart. They've got liver disease, cirrhosis, whatever it is, <laughs> these high-risk medical conditions that really can complicate surgery and surgery can complicate the medical issue. I manage the patients through that as well to prevent complications. Um, and then finally we see people for anything acute that comes up with surgery. So somebody faints after surgery, they have a new arrhythmia, they have shortness of breath, they need oxygen. Um, you know, any of the general emergencies that can happen in the hospital, we, we also manage those.
1: Okay. So, I'm going to John this for a second to <laughs> distill it down. So uh, somebody comes in for surgery, mm-hmm. maybe emergent or maybe elective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And obviously their, their primary care physician is at their, you know, at the primary care office could be miles away. Sure. Maybe the PCP, the primary care physician is on vacation. Who knows? It doesn't matter, but they come in and there's a surgeon who's going to do a surgical procedure. And they're obviously very good at that surgical procedure. But in the event that there is a medical issue outside of the surgery itself, they need a doctor there. And that's, where you come in?
3: Yeah. So the way I, that Can I, I explain that? it to—that's good. That was yeah. You, oh, you nailed you, it. So, yes.
0: <laughs> you nailed it. But um, <laughs> yeah. good job, Jenna. So Let the doctor
2: explain. Very close. Very
3: close. <laughs> oh, now it's
2: very close. No, no, no. no that, was,
3: that was great. Um, yeah, that's essentially what we do. And you okay. know, preventing complications, treating complications—that's basically it. So the way I explain it to patients is, you know, you're here for surgery. Your surgeons are amazing. They're going to do a great job with you. They're going to take care of your bones. I'm going to take care of all the squishy parts, right? Liver, kidneys, lungs, heart, any symptoms that come up, any side effects from the medications we give you. I'm going to help you get through this as healthy as possible with as few problems or complications. That's my role as, as a surgical hospitalist while you're here. Okay. That's that's how I introduce my role to patients.
0: Okay. And I assume the better you are at your job, the easier it is for the surgeon and anesthesiologist to determine what kind of medication they're going to give to put them under versus nerve blocks versus... Right.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We You know, if we do a, a really good pre-op, we... Um, you know, we discover something that wasn't known before in the patient's chart, we call the anesthesiologist and say, Hey, I found this new murmur. I'm going to get an echo before surgery or, you know, whatever. And they go, Oh, great. You know, that's fantastic. By the time we see them, they'll be worked up and we don't have to start a new 10 minutes before they're supposed to go into the OR when everyone's <laughs> yeah. already in there scrubbed in, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we do work very closely with our consultants and and in concert with them to, to just optimize people for surgery.
1: So do you, I mean, is it like a, is it a powwow with the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and you before each surgery and after each surgery or how does that work?
3: I would say not, not before each surgery, but, um, you know, directly powwowing with the, with the attending surgeon, but. We absolutely will talk with their team. You know, as academic medicine, we roll in big teams. So there may be several um, advanced practice providers and residents consulting. And so if a patient is fairly straightforward, we know we're going to be managing the medical problems from admission to discharge. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's a straightforward pre-op, we might tell the team, hey, they're good to go for surgery. I'm holding this or that medication. I'd like to give them this ahead of time. We want to get this, you know, chest x-ray before they go. Uh, and then we put in all the orders, handle the follow-up, and tell them, all right, I'm happy with my workup. They're good to go. Uh-huh. So sometimes it's as simple as that. We just say, hey, we checked them out. This is what we did, and we're happy, and, and they're okay to go for surgery. Um, these are the things we're going to be watching out for post-op or the things that, that you guys should know. Um, for example, that the patient took aspirin and Plavix this morning at 9 a.m., or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is <laughs> that we found out that would be pertinent. Um, And, um, you know, it goes from there all the way to having a conversation where the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and us are all very involved and talking with the family and saying, this is a very high risk situation. These are all of the options. These are the degrees of risk that we perceive and, you know, making a really, um, you know, tight and, um, coordinated effort if it's really a difficult or challenging or, or risky, um, you know, type procedure.
0: How wow. good are patients at actually following pre-op instructions? <laughs> it just
3: totally makes
0: totally it sound brain. more realistic. Yeah,
1: exactly.
3: Brain, <laughs> brain distractions. Say that
0: again. Yeah. <laughs> oh we actually God. pay the announcer <laughs> to do this during <laughs> our podcast. So we um, like, how good are patients at actually following pre-op instructions? Are they to the T every single time? Or is it, well, I took my medication because my you know, primary told me to take my medication every day.
3: Yeah, it's it's totally variable. It's um you know, it's sort of like anything else. You know, how good are patients at following the instructions to take their blood pressure medication anyway? How good are humans at doing that in general, right? Um, oh, this is a fun
2: conversation. Like
3: I, I can tell you, for me to take a daily medication I have to set, like, six alarms, like, four iPhone reminders. I have to put it, like, on top of the coffee machine because that's the one thing I'm not going to
2: forget to do. (laughs) Uh,
3: Literally, you know, if I I have a vitamin, that's all I take is a vitamin. Will not remember to take that vitamin. I will go months and go, wait, aren't I on a vitamin? You know? And so it's literally on my espresso machine in my kitchen. And I'll forget to take it. <laughs> so I mean, humans are terrible with that kind of thing. Um, you know, and a lot, most of my patients are amazing with the amount and the complexity of their outpatient medications that they manage. We do a, a you know, relatively good job of telling them, you know, marking off on a paper in the pre-op, uh, what they should take and what they shouldn't, but the signals do get crossed sometimes, mm-hmm. um, which is why it's really important for us to do not just the chart you know, med reconciliation, where we kind of look through and see what they're on. But when was the last time you took this drug? Um, You know, because maybe about 25% of the time, I'll find that a blood pressure medication that we had asked them to hold, um, they took anyway, because they got confused. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get conflicting data, too. They might have seen their PCP for pre-op, they might have seen me for, you know, a more intense pre-op that's dedicated to their procedure. And then they may also have talked with the anesthesia team, and maybe they... Mm -hmm. got confused in that, in Mm. that cycle. So it's complicated to try to get the medications perfect. Um, it's just a very complicated system. So I would say it varies, but most people, I mean, gosh, my patients are complicated. I don't see patients who don't need medical care while they're here for surgery. So I only see the most complicated patients and sometimes it's, you know, a patient will rattle off their medication list and of, you know, 12 things and they know the times and the doses. And it's just blows my mind that they're able to, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, we, we don't make it easy on people with mm-hmm. all the technology and all the ability that we have to make things easier. We have not made taking medications correctly easy at all for patients. It's right. one of the big follies in medicine.
1: So, and so I'm guessing if, if you know, if you're a Healthy person, you come in for surgery with zero complications, zero past medical history. You don't take medications. They're not going to see you right. Correct. Okay. Right.
3: Unless they develop a new, you know, all of a sudden they come out of surgery and they have an arrhythmia that they didn't have before, okay, then okay. I consult for that. Yeah, yeah. But we screen through the patients that we think will uh, will benefit, um, you know, from our care and from our expertise. Um, generally, if they're on a medication that could be harmful, either if not given or if given mm-hmm. around the time of surgery, or if their medical conditions are going to be exacerbated by surgery in a way that they really need close monitoring and, and titrating of their blood pressure or their you know fluid status. Like a patient comes in with heart failure for surgery, that's pretty high risk, right? Because they're going to get a lot of fluids. They're going to have their diuretics held to protect their kidneys. So in that situation, you can't under volume resuscitate a surgical patient because they will be hypotensive and they will have problems. Uh, so you have to give the fluids, but... You're in this very careful physiologic tipping point where you could give too much, and then you're in acute pulmonary edema, right? So we balance all of that. That's our job.
1: You realize I got it. it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll explain ex- it later. <laughs> Thank
2: you. <laughs>
0: it's like, remember when the intern used to put the Lasix in the preceptor's cup, and then they would have to go to the bathroom a lot? Yeah. They had to hold that, so then. Oh, okay. All right. That's,
2: that
3: sounds like...
0: I don't know why Doctor Kill didn't say in the
2: first yeah, place yes, with all yes. this
1: pre. Uh, that, that
3: reminds me of something. I'm yeah. like
1: a, I'm just a middle person in here, just right. trying to help out right, right, with right, this pre yeah. pre eclampsic uh, hyperventil. I, what exactly? I, I don't. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> so do you do you screen every surgery patient, or does the surgeon request your services, or how do you kind of filter what's needed, what's not needed? How does that?
3: It's both. So, so we screen through every patient that comes in for really? surgery. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's one of my tasks in the morning. Um, it was very, you know, challenging when I very first started the job, okay. you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, I have to figure out how to look through this patient's chart and figure out if they need me or not. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, it's four years later doing this for, you know, 30, 20 patients a day, however many okay. Um, it's really quick. So we're good at it. We do it, you know, it might take awesome. me 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, okay quickly scroll through, you know, look through their medication list, their problem list, their outside records really quick. Um, And from that I can, and their vitals in their labs, obviously, from when they've been seen at Stanford. And um, that's usually enough to tell if someone's going to have a problem. Okay. And it's also a quick, you know, if I just eyeball the labs real quick and see chronic kidney disease, there are some conditions like that or history of, you know, stents put in for a heart attack. There are some things that trigger you out this is an automatic, like I'm gonna follow this patient, yeah. and so once you hit one of those things, you can stop looking at the chart and just mark them down to be yep, seen. Yeah, I will. I <laughs> yeah. will follow this person. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not too bad, but we do look through every, and then you know if there's a patient that didn't hit our radar because we thought they were healthy enough that we didn't need to follow, um, then if a problem comes up, we're embedded in the surgical service, so we're not consultants um, we work alongside the surgeons every single day. So, and we put our own orders and stuff in the chart. So basically mm-hmm. what, you know, we're, we're in there working with them. We're in the workroom with the providers that are seeing the patients on the floor. So, um, we're literally sitting there like this. So, Hey, like, I'm not going to follow Mrs. M today. She looked pretty healthy, but I'm going to see Mr. P and I'm worried about his heart. So I'm going to do this and that, um, you know, let me know who's discharging. Let me know who's sick. And then they go, Oh, actually this one guy was short of breath last night. Um, do you mind if you see him too? You're not following. And, you know, and then, that's how we work it so it's we're fully integrated um, which makes it really easy
1: okay do you ever go into the surgeries
3: no
2: oh Uh, well that was (laughs) wow
3: no i do not um i i am one of those people who will do my very best to you know scrub in and stay sterile and this and that and you know, I'll bump up against someone, itch my nose, have to pee. I just, I am not cut out for the strict, <laughs> the strict protocol of the OR. Never was in med school. I was just paralyzed the whole time. Like I am gonna screw this up.
0: <laughs> well, John <laughs> so, did great in the surgery that we went into.
3: Oh, you, you know, guys got like, to go into a surgery. I, I've seen,
1: a, I've seen a couple. And, yeah. You know, I pref- I like to be warmed up to large,
0: large incisions and, and things, not to be brought in the So yeah, of we it. went into a total knee. Uh, um, yeah. But we assume we we're going to be there from the very beginning, and that's easier to process. You know, sure. we're going to start cutting, then it's going to be open, yeah. and things like that. Uh, we went in right before the bone saw hit, oh,
2: so we okay. walk in
0: with a completely open knee. Yeah, John
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, had to look at the, the camera
0: for a little bit.
2: Well, I mean, you know,
0: I, it's uh, it's a defense mechanism
1: from all my time back in the field, <laughs>
2: right? right. Yeah. <laughs> but after it's...
1: that few minutes, strong. Work oh after. yeah. After, oh, after that, then then I'm like, all right, we got to get this angle, the lighting here. I was I was ready to go.
0: Yeah, surgery not gentle though. I mean, just no. the way a completely open knee, and they're just bending and manipulating, and
3: yeah, it's amazing. It's really as carpentry on the human body, very very precise and controlled, um, but. But carpentry, you know, Mm -hmm. it saws and hammers and drills and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've
1: you've done surgery as part of medical school. I don't know. I'm sorry. Just somebody that you went to, you know, you've gotten to multiple punk rock shows with and you're like, you've cut
2: people off. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes.
3: Not, not anymore. But yeah, um, you know, some, some of my colleagues really loved procedures and and being in the, the OR and, and, um. That was never me. I was always cold, hungry, tired of standing up, hot from the lights, you know, just confused about where we were in the body. All you can see is the sea of blue with a little, you know, I'm like, what is... Where, where's, the,
2: where's the head on? You know? <laughs> this is not for me. <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> it's like that Simpsons episode where he's like the leg bones connected to the hip bone, the hip bones connected to the wristwatch. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, how did, I mean, how did you gravitate towards this? I guess, specialty? Is that what you call it?
3: Yeah, it's kind of a subspecialty okay. in within internal medicine or within hospital medicine. Um, it came up as an opportunity. I had rotated or we had planned to rotate with the uh, service as a as a senior resident. Okay. Um, and I was looking for hospitalist jobs all over the Bay Area and was okay. interviewing all over the place and had a couple really good uh, p- you know potential just regular internal medicine inpatient jobs, so hospitalist jobs. Um that that were um, under consideration um, in Oakland and in the area, you know down here south bay mm-hmm. and and san francisco. and um, and then you know, one day my current um, boss called me up and she was involved in the residency program. So she knew me from that. And one of my colleagues who I actually went to med school with, and she was a couple years ahead of me, and then she went to residency at Stanford, and then I followed her to Stanford, and then she mm-hmm. got a job as a surgical co-management hospitalist. And her husband got a job up north, and she had to leave. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, one day I just got a kind of a call out of the blue, like, hey, we're, you know, if you want to interview for this job, um, you know, there's an opening suddenly. And I thought, wow, surgical co-management hospital, that's interesting. <laughs> haven't done that one before. I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't rotated yet, but I was planning to. But mm-hmm. I was like, oh. So I talked to my friend, and luckily this was somebody that I had known for years and years throughout my training, really trusted her. And she said, you know, this is actually a really interesting, cool subspecialty. It's not what you had planned to do, but you know, it's something that you should, you know, seriously consider. And I told them they should ask you if you <laughs> want to do it because I think it'd be a good fit for you. And yeah. I went, Asher. Ah, sure. So, <laughs> um, let's do it, you know? So, um, so I interviewed and, and got the position. So
1: <laughs> I love how nothing in your career has been really planned. for right, it's right. just, a, <laughs> well, Let's go check this out. Exactly. Um, We're going to take a quick break, but my question going into the break is, this is all you do. There's nothing else on the side that you do that might be interesting or creative. (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. We'll be right back. Australia. Australia? Yeah, Australia. They finally downloaded an episode, and now we're on six continents.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I guess, does the accent come with it? No, no, I'm not taking that bait. But the bait I will take is we only have one continent left. I'm looking at you, Antarctica. Seriously, just, there's ten people there. We just need to get to one of them. Just one. That's it. And then they tell their nine friends, we have the entire continent cornered. It's just, it's ours. What about the penguins? Yeah, we're going to get to them later, okay? I'm working on my dialect and translation services to really be able to get a centered message towards them.
1: All right, all right. All I'm saying, though, is that six out of seven ain't bad.
0: Yeah, you know, you're right. Who'd have to thank for this? You know, we have everyone who listens,
1: all of our listeners. Honestly, we get texts, we get emails, we have speaking engagements now, all by way of the
0: podcast. Yeah, you know, this has really been incredible. And thank you, Evan, for your support. Uh, while you're listening, please subscribe, leave us a review. It really helps us out.
1: Yeah, and our guests have delivered beyond our wildest expectations, so honestly, please tell a friend. Uh, if you like this show, so will they.
0: Yeah, it must be nice to have some of those friends.
1: Hey man, I got all the friends I need. I got you, I got Dr. Silka in
0: episode 3,
1: and I got Dr. Law in
0: episode 12. Yeah, you know, go back and listen to those episodes. They're really good, and you'll hear John's friends. Back to the show? <laughs> back to the show.
2: Welcome
0: back, John... Where do those commercials come from? Those are amazing. Just the, the scripting of it and I and put hilarious. a good 30 seconds of thought into writing those ads out. Hilarious. I just – penguin thing. I just can't get
1: over it. I think your first penguin rant was a little bit better though. Okay, I'll work on the next one. The way you were so casually like, you know what? Dress down a little bit. Plug in the pod. You know, It's a good listen. That's true. You I, mean, I mean
0: you, you can listen to the pod formally too. I mean if you want to go tuxedo or a suit and listen to the pod, you're more than welcome to. Just the penguin just seemed a little hoity-toity. No, and I need to bring him down a little. bit. I agree. In fact,
1: I would imagine that if you're walking along in a tuxedo and a top hat, I'm going to guess, right? Top hat, Jesse?
0: With a monocle,
1: probably. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and okay. you've got some earbuds in. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to see that, and they're going to go just kind of, you know, take the earbuds out off the box, and they're just going to nod. So I know what you're doing this weekend. I'm wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, throwing rocks because apparently uh, Dr. Kittle condones uh, throwing rocks at doctors. <laughs>
3: just until you hit one (laughs) that was my point
1: (laughs) (laughs) so um, you know I, I still this was planted so way back when I was still on the box and I ran into Dr. Kittle up at Stanford and we were talking about what she does and I was hungry so I wanted to go eat lunch and she briefly mentioned something about hypnosis and I was like that's interesting I should start a podcast in five years and ask her about that (laughs)
3: Well, you're welcome for the inspiration. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I will – I'll give you my next strange uh, diversion from the expected path of my career. (laughs) So there is a theme here. Um, So about six months into being a surgical co-manager hospitalist, it occurred to me that a lot of my job, certainly not all of it, but a lot of it was treating patients – for opioid-related side effects because okay. of the pain management they required from said carpentry on the human body that we discussed, <laughs> right? All
1: right, two real quick questions: uh, Is this after? So you're attending at this point?
3: Yes. Okay, so you're yes. attending at
1: this point, and then just what? Like, what are those opiate medications you're giving?
3: Yeah. So the <clears throat> the standard um, inpatient treatment for for perioperative pain and orthopedics is generally. Things like oxycodone or Mm -hmm. hydrocodone, hydromorphone, if needed, you know, IV for rescue. Um, The anesthesia team usually uses fentanyl. Okay, and so these are kind of all the common, you know, common perioperative opioids that are used. Okay, Um, you know, but we're we're of course in the opioid crisis. Right. We're using these medications uh, for everyone, sort of, you know, like you would go to the store and get a Tylenol, and you expect that. People should be able to take this dose of Tylenol safely. It's on the bottle. This is what we recommend. You should be able to take this and kind of all comers should be fine with this dose of Tylenol. That's printed on Mm -hmm. the box, right? On the box.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow.
3: I missed
2: it. Just just
3: another plug. Just another plug. Um, So, um, you know, but with opioids, it's, what we're learning about them is that they really are not necessarily one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And you see that clinically manifest in a variety of ways. So, you know, you may give 10 milligrams of oxycodone to someone and they say, wow, that felt like nothing. I, you know, my knee was just operated on. It's still really hurting. I need another 10 and an IV dose of hydromorphone because my pain's at 10 out of 10 and that's all that's going to, take care of it potentially. Uh And we give it to them and they're like, that's a little better. Thanks. And they go on about their way and they start taking their medication and they're all right. You have another patient might be the same age, might be the same gender, might have the same, you know, similar medical problems. You give them a 10 milligram dose of oxycodone and they're, you know, blood pressure drops, they're vomiting, they're near fainting, they're delirious, they're, you know, all of these things. So, you know, or itching uncontrollably or, you know, whatever it is. So, um, you know, opioids are very, quite variably tolerated by everyone. Okay. And you don't know till you give it how somebody is going to respond to it. But opioid side effects are extremely common. And using opioids for orthopedic surgery is generally considered necessary because okay. they are, um, you know, they are invasive procedures that, you know, is, as precise as they are and as good as they've gotten about making them as minimally invasive as possible, it still hurts, right, to have mm-hmm. a joint replaced. Oh, yeah. And you're also taking patients who, you know, the reason for surgery in a lot of cases, especially our elective cases, is they have chronic pain that they're trying to solve. Okay. So the brain is used to having pain in the location of the body where surgery just happened. And so, you know, they kind of say neurons that, that fire together, wire together, and all those little <laughs> things they love to say about... Oh, know. yeah.
1: I say that all the time, too. Yeah,
3: right. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, the stuff you say. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, and it's really, it's really true in chronic pain. You know, you kind mm-hmm. of develop these pathways where, you know, if you have chronic pain in your knee and somebody accidentally bumps up against that knee and that mm-hmm. knee has been Bothering you like crazy for the last year, you're gonna, ow, you know, you're yeah. gonna respond to that much more than if someone bumps your good knee okay. and you're just like, oh, excuse me, you know. <laughs> and so, um, so that that's really important when it comes to doing surgery on a joint because you've got this chronic pain, um, you know, you sort of rehearsed this chronic pain for a long time okay. in your neurologic system. And so, of course, when you have surgery on that area, your body's ready to experience that as pain. Mm-hmm. And so you really have to treat it, you know, and opioids are still the best medication that we have for treating surgical pain. Okay. And so we give them and they tend to cause a lot of harm. Okay. And so, um, you know, kind of going back to my harm reduction days, you know, how can we minimize the sort of you're, you're making a sacrifice by using this effective treatment that has a lot of harm. How can we minimize the harm? How can we harm reductionists? Recognize we're not going to stop giving opioids. That's not the point. It's like when you teach somebody to, you know, inject heroin without contracting hep C. You're not saying your only option for help is to stop using the heroin. That would be wonderful for your health if you would be willing or able to do that. Right. But in the meantime, before you get to that goal, let's teach you how to do it in a way that you're not going to catch HIV or hep C along mm-hmm. the way, right? Or overdose or whatever it is. So opioids are the same way. So a harm reduction approach to opioids is, is the way that I was thinking about it is how can we reduce the harms of these medications that we're going to be using? and. I kind of had it rolling around in my head. Like there's got to be something I can do as an internist on a surgical service. It's a very unique opportunity to be able to interface with this type of situation and this type of patient. And um, around the same time, I came across just in a random PubMed search. PubMed is like our, you know, medical journal search engine online um, that you have to subscribe to. So, you know, doctors have access to this.
1: Is it Stanford only or is it worldwide?
3: it's it's worldwide okay, it's, okay. it's all the medical literature basically <clears throat> okay. um, Stanford subscribes to it mm-hmm. and makes it available to all the staff so okay. um, so basically you you know you do your PubMed search it brings up all of the medical journals are, are online there so you can read articles from any journal normally you know if somebody wants to you know get a an article from a medical journal they might pay twenty or thirty dollars mm-hmm. per article
2: right right oh, this yeah.
3: is Pretty much every article that's ever been written in the medical journal at your fingertips, click of a button for free to doctors, right? right. So it's this amazing, really awesome tool. Um, I spend a lot of time <laughs> on PubMed. Like, I also spend a lot yeah, of time so,
1: searching so, pubs too. So
3: <laughs> right, it's sort of like Google Scholar, but a little bit, a little bit. Um, I
2: care it's dying over here. That
3: stupid joke. <laughs> um, oh. So. Uh, So anyhow, so I'm looking on PubMed and I I come across something about hypnosis and perioperative pain. Okay. And I go, huh, I wonder if that's real.
1: I love where this is going. I'm so excited.
3: Yeah. So uh, uh, this can't, I don't know. Like, can this, is this really like,
2: no, no, No.
3: (laughs) (laughs) never heard of it in med school, never heard of it in, you know, in any of my pathways in medicine, I never heard of hypnosis being a real thing. Right. Yeah. And, um, but it's funny because my, my mom and my aunt had gotten into it in the seventies with like Shirley Brown and they had learned some self-hypnosis techniques and thought it was really fun. And, um, and so I had known about it from when I was a kid that hypnosis is something that you use for like, you know, kind of more for like relaxation, imagination stuff. Um, and I'll come back to that again later. Um, but I had this memory of hypnosis as being like. Kind of a spooky, fun, kind of like using a Ouija board kind of thing that we, you know, that we played with at my house when I was a kid a little bit. Um, But yeah, not as a medical tool, right? Mm -hmm. And so I find this paper that um, use of hypnosis um, as a pain adjuvant. So, you know, supportive pain um, treatment for patients undergoing invasive uh, radiologic procedures. So basically interventional radiology does a lot of procedures like biopsies and things like that through the skin guided by imaging, um, you know, fluoroscopy, that kind of thing. Yeah. And this study was, um, was a bunch of patients who were in the IR suite to have these invasive procedures done biopsies, needles going into you kind of thing. And They did hypnosis in a group. They kind of were nice to a group but didn't really do hypnosis. Like, hey, you're doing great, you know, but weren't hypnotizing them just sort of as like the placebo control arm. And then they did usual care for the other group. And I was looking at this graph, and it was a big study. It was like 250 patients or something like that. And it was um, published in The Lancet, which is a good journal. Um, Good. It is an excellent journal. Okay,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've even heard of The Lancet. Okay, good. I I wanted to,
3: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So – So it's in the lancet. Mm -hmm. This is no small potatoes. It's a, it's a large trial. It's in the lancet. And I start reading through and I see this graph and it's a graph of the pain. One is of pain and one is of anxiety as the procedures go on. And these procedures were about three hours long between two and three hours long. And you could just clearly see on the graph, the the pain as the procedure got longer went up incrementally with the length of the procedure in the control group the usual care group and so did anxiety like the longer i'm on this table getting Mm -hmm. poked the more pain and the more anxiety i'm gonna have in the other group the group that they were just nice to it kind of meandered up and down a little bit but Mm -hmm. pretty much stayed flat they kind of had the same amount of pain anxiety all the groups started in the same place Um, and the hypnosis group had a clear downward trend in pain and basically by the end of the procedure the anxiety had gone down to nothing
2: okay as
3: these procedures got longer and the graphs were just very impactful. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. Um, you know, so I read a little bit more. And I discovered that they had given patients the patient controlled analgesia PCA, okay. the button that you can push to give yourself IV pain medication. Okay. Yeah. And we set it to a certain dose in a lockout. So you can't overdose yourself with it. But maybe every 15 minutes, you can get this little dose, right? Um, when your button turns green, you can push it. So that's what they had for patients during the procedure. So they could control their own pain management as these procedures went on. So the patients in the group that had less pain and less anxiety, how much opioids do you think they used during their procedures compared to the other control groups?
1: They used less?
3: So less pain and less anxiety. You think they used less pain medication I'm and also had less pain and less anxiety?
0: I'm confused. Lots of pain meds. Oh, okay. Lots of pain meds.
3: No, you were right the first time. (laughs) And that's what made this incredible. Less pain by a lot. Less anxiety by a landslide. 40% less pain medication. And on top of that, the procedures were 17 minutes shorter. Well, why? That's weird. Did they just, like, forget to finish the procedure? You know, what's what's up with that? Well, If you give 40% less pain medications, back to the side effects, you're stopping less to give them a fluid bolus for low blood pressure. You're stopping less to treat their nausea. Like, wait, stop poking. We have to turn them so they can vomit, right? All these things um, translate into a calmer patient who's having less pain and less anxiety during the procedure. The procedures get over with shorter, so less time in the IR suite, you know. The whole the whole thing is a little less traumatic for everyone. Mm-hmm. They can get more patients in that day if all the procedures are 20 minutes shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used way less pain medication, 40% less pain medication. And so this blew me away. I thought, this is incredible. If this is real, right? right I'm still right. like still skeptical <laughs> of the Lancet, right? Because I'm Dr. Kittle. No, so, <laughs> so,
1: so, Editor um, of the Lancet. <laughs> yeah.
3: Right, yeah. Um, no, so I'm, you know, I'm like, this is this is in the Lancet. This has to, you know, this got to be legit and so i'm just so impressed and and i think okay i gotta figure out who who did this trial you know okay. what what kind of unicorn was able to have this result from hypnosis <laughs> i didn't even know this is a real thing and now i'm seeing these results and just blown away and so um so i look up at the at the authors and the, the first author was alvira lang and i look up, oh she's at harvard okay now and you know she's she's done a ton of hypnosis research kind of get a handle on her well who's the last author right the first author generally writes the paper and is in charge of a lot of the study. And then the last author is usually like the big dog on, on campus, right? This Mm -hmm. is the person who kind of oversees everything or mentors the first author, that kind of thing. Well, lo and behold, it says Dr. David Spiegel. And I go, Oh, that's interesting. So if you look at Dr. David Spiegel on PubMed, there are, you know, up come hundreds of publications about hypnosis and he's, he's, you know, definitely one of the preeminent hypnosis researchers. (laughs) I wonder where this guy is. Well, Stanford. He at Stanford. <laughs> uh, I got the answer finally. You got it. You got it. Um, so I go, this is, you got to be kidding me. At this point, it felt like a lightning bolt out of the sky. Okay. You know, I'm a surgical co-manager hospitalist looking for a way to help my patients with pain. I kind of know about hypnosis and I like to do the little off the Off the cuff stranger, You know, off the box stuff, right? And here is this amazing data. And here is this person who has done this incredible work at Stanford, like this is this something's going on here, you know. <laughs> the universe is trying to tell yeah, me. The stars something. are aligned. And so I um, I actually cold emailed Dr. David Spiegel that night. It was a Sunday night. I said, "You know, I just came across your paper in the Lancet and I looked up some of your other work and I've never heard of medical hypnosis for pain management for surgical pain, but I'm a surgical co-manager hospitalist for orthopedics. We need to do this with my patients. Will you help me? Will you guide me? How do I learn how to do this? You know, this is incredible. And, um, he emailed me back the same day because he's that kind of guy and said, yeah, yeah. I, you know, you're absolutely right. We should be doing this for orthopedics. I'd be happy to help you. And we set up an appointment to meet maybe, you know, the next week sometime. And, Uh um, and in the meantime i said well how do i get trained to do hypnosis for you know is, the, is there a place it's that a fellowship like, for this? <laughs> Yeah, like is there a place that people go you know kind of <laughs> rhetorically is there a place that people go to learn <laughs> medical hypnosis you know and um and he goes yeah there's um uh, there's national conferences from two professional societies that have been around ever since like the early 1900s. These these old medical societies, you know, similar to the, you know, the AMA or the, um, you know, all these, these professional societies have been really long running some of these amazing, um, you know, histories with these groups. And, uh, and so two of these organizations have four day trainings to teach medical hypnosis, you have to be a medical provider to go. And they basically run through these courses of how to perform medical hypnosis. And, They're tried and true, very effective. Um, they cover all the bases, everything from ethics, consent, um, the actual hypnosis itself. They go through pediatrics, adults, you know, you you basically um, can go through beginning, intermediate, and advanced training in medical hypnosis through societies. Like, oh, there is a place. (laughs) there place. (laughs) There is a place. And not only that, there was a conference coming up the following weekend, and I had happened to have a four day weekend. And I thought, no, that's, that just has to be, <laughs> and so, you know, seven days later I was in Orlando getting trained in medical hypnosis. Fantastic. Wow. And yeah, within six months we had a, um, IRB approval to do my first hypnosis study for knee replacement patients, uh, mentored by good Dr. David Spiegel. What's an IRB? Is, uh, oh, the, um, it's the ethics review of okay. research. Okay we basically had permission to start the trial.
2: Wow.
3: Um, and yeah, and David Spiegel's just an incredible, incredible person, incredible mentor, incredible scientist and physician. He's, he's just the coolest. And he's mentored me through all of my hypnosis work so far and mm-hmm. mentored me doing my first and second clinical trial. And um, he's just amazing and incredible. And it was all just by chance, pubmedding, essentially Googling hypnosis, <laughs> yeah. finding the Lancet <laughs> trial, finding him realizing he was at Stanford. And, um, ever since then I've been a hypnosis researcher.
1: So have you written your first paper yet?
3: Yes, I have um, Awesome, good for you. Yeah, I have some papers that are in process and one that's waiting to be published that's okay. in the pipeline, but it's coming out in a special edition, so it won't be out until January.
2: Okay.
3: Um but yeah, I've got a couple papers in hypnosis that are that are already accepted and coming out and several others who are, that are under submission right now. So nice. um but yeah, I did my first uh trial was on knee replacement patients. Mm-hmm. And um, for that one, I'm just I'm just finishing the write up of the data this week. Actually, I was oh, okay. working on it this morning. Oh, okay. Um, but you know, basically, we found a really positive treatment effect, and mm-hmm. patients actually really liked it. They, um, I think, 93 percent of my hypnosis group said they would use hypnosis again. Wow. So even the ones who maybe didn't benefit from an actual opioid use standpoint for the surgical admission still felt that it benefited them in some way and would use it again. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, you know, more than 70% said that it helped with their pain. So um, so I thought that was really cool. It's a small trial. It's my first trial, uh, but we're going to get it published hopefully soon and, um, and use it as it's really great preliminary data to get a larger, to get funding to do a larger trial, okay. which is always the next step, right? You do your prelim mm. kind of exploratory uh, feasibility Test yourself, test yeah, the system, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then you get some money and do it for real, you know? <laughs> again. Yeah. So, um, so that's the um, you know that's the goal.
0: Nice. So, how does hypnosis actually work, medical? I've seen the shows when I was in college. They had a, there was a episode. come in. And you know, make people cluck like a chicken right. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I assume the medical portion is a little different.
3: It's a lot different. Yeah. So a lot it's different. um, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot different. Um, and I, I do spend quite a bit of my uh, time as a hypnosis researcher talking about the differences between stage hypnosis and medical hypnosis and all these things.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so really, medical hypnosis, what it looks like, or what it's what it. You know, appears to the patient and to the provider when they're actually performing the intervention. As you're sitting or you know semi reclining in a comfortable chair, um, and I'm talking to you, you may have your eyes open or closed, usually closed, and that's it. That is the whole. <laughs> that is as fancy as it gets. It's uh-huh. you know, it's it's essentially a form of therapy in the sense that. Um, Not in the traditional terms, it's not defined similarly to psychotherapy necessarily, but it's essentially a form of therapy between, you know, a trusted medical provider and a patient using words to sort of invoke this phenomenon of hypnosis, um, which allows you to be more self-absorbed and more um, dissociated from the environment and more suggestible to You know, things that you want to achieve to feeling less discomfort, to not suffering so much from those signals that you're noticing coming up from your knee after surgery, um, you know, to not really paying attention to all of the distracting sounds in the hospital after surgery because they just serve to relax you more as you hear them because you know they're all there just to protect you. So you don't have hmm. to be bothered um, by, you know, in your sleep by the beeping of the machines, because um, really you just you just remember that those are there to keep you safe and it relaxes you more and you're able to drift off and have lovely dreams. Right? Hmm. Those are some kind <laughs> of language you know mm-hmm. techniques that you might use in perioperative hypnosis. And when you're in the hypnotic state, you absorb those on a deeper level and we can get into some of the brain pathways that are associated with hypnosis. Please.
2: Um, <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> you don't have to ask here um, twice. Yeah,
3: but but that's, that's basically the gist of it is that you're able to sort of instill these new sensations into a person's experience through talking with them while they're relaxed in a certain way that is the state of hypnosis. Um, so, you know, I kind of say, yeah, I know that there's, there's stage hypnosis. It does serve a purpose, like, like everything else that's a little bit fringe, you know, there's, there are always going to be a good, an upside to it. And the upside to it is that a lot of the shows that are really professional that use hypnosis, um, a lot of those people actually, um, are also trained in medical hypnosis and have a practice on the side. And they kind of do that as their sort of moneymaker, but they use it to bring awareness to, look, if I can get you to do this on stage, think about what you can do if you're trying to quit smoking or lose weight or, hmm. you know, try to calm yourself down so you can be, you know, speaking in public for your job, whatever it is. And so some there are some really good apples out there who – use it to sort of bring awareness and teach people that, you know, your mind is powerful, these techniques are powerful, you can seek out somebody who really knows how to do this for you to help you meet your goals and help you suffer less. And so um, not all stage hypnosis is bad for that reason. (laughs) Um, But it is, you know, it can also be used like a party drug, you know, like I tell my trainees all the time, when I'm telling them about hypnosis for the first time, the residents and the medical students, Mm -hmm. they love to hear about it, you know, because it's, I would have loved to hear about it, too, when I was a trainee. Um, But, you know, I tell them that you can, like, ropivacaine and bupivacaine, these are nerve block medications that we use every day for orthopedic surgery to numb wounds, right? They're the same thing as Novocaine. All the things that end in cane are basically the same plant as cocaine, right? So you can use these things as a very carefully titrated, controlled, precise medical intervention, Mm -hmm. or... You can use them as a party drug. You know,
2: there's, and a lot of things
3: in medicine are like that. Ketamine, opioids, analogy, all, the ames, yeah. all the anes, all that. medical hypnosis is the same. You can use it as a party drug and make someone look like a chicken and embarrass them on stage. <laughs> but that is not medical hypnosis any more than giving you a shot of Novocaine at the dentist is like snorting cocaine at a party. Mm-hmm. They're not the same thing. They're not being done in the same way by the same people for the same purpose. Um, doesn't mean that they're not effective for different goals in different settings, <laughs> but the setting that I use medical hypnosis in is, you know, the controlled meeting a goal trained to keep you safe, you know, trained to, to basically, um, you know, perform a procedure with your consent as if I was doing a lumbar puncture, or any other procedure with mm-hmm. you for your medical benefit. Um, and so, you know, it goes in with informed consent and it's all above board and, um, and it's real and it works.
1: <laughs> what a, uh, I mean, I know there. Uh, Garrett asked. Um, so, what's the neural pathways again in this in your brain? Yeah, maybe
0: pretty much as all the pathophysiology of this would be yeah. fascinating to know.
3: So there's um, there's a lot of research about the brain pathways and the mechanisms involved in hypnosis. There's still, of course, a ton to learn. Mm-hmm. But what you see in people who are highly hypnotizable, we, we you know we have these great tools now, like functional MRI. So functional MRI is different from regular MRI. So an MRI is, you know, a radiologic study where they use um, the polarization of the water molecules in your body. Essentially, they excite them with a magnet so that all the water molecules shift into the same direction, and fall back down to their their uh, pre-excitation state. And the movement of those water molecules and all the tissues in your body tell the computer different densities of tissue, and basically translates that into a 3D picture of you know of what. The, the structure looks like in your body. So you get an MRI of your abdomen, it can show you the underside of your liver, you know, all based on these magnet signals that it throws at you in the machine, and what the water molecules are doing in your body. Um, so that's regular MRI, okay, um, gives you a picture. Mm-hmm. And so um, with functional MRI, what it's more looking at, it's kind of more of a real time study over time, where it's mapping the, the blood flow and the oxygen utilization in different types of of tissues in your body or different areas in your body. So you can use functional MRI to look at, you know, basically on a picture, it'll light up. Um, So the the picture of the brain will light up on a functional MRI in places that are activated at the same time or using metabolizing energy at the same time. So turned on or activated or, um, you know, or connecting with each other. And so, with functional MRI, you can hypnotize someone. And during that session, you can look at the parts of their brain that light up. Okay. And this gives you an idea of what parts of the brain are active during hypnosis. You can do the same study for somebody who's not hypnotizable, mm-hmm. try to hypnotize them in the, in the MRI and see that those spots don't light up. Okay. There's been a lot of studies that looked at that. And, um, and so the basic gist of Hypnosis, when it comes to the functional brain connectivity, is that the prefrontal cortex, which is like your dolphin brain, right? It's the part of your brain that's the most advanced. It's evolved the latest in human history. It's like your virtual reality center of your brain that allows you to simulate things that have never happened. It's like a pretty cool, you know, planning executive function part of your brain. That part of your brain and the anterior cingulate cortex, which is subcortical, that part of your brain they have some connectivity during hypnosis for hypnotizable people that is not there. If you try to hypnotize someone who's not hypnotizable. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that connectivity, I like to think of it as, is your dolphin brain talking to your lizard brain. Okay. <laughs> 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 so, it, Cause your lizard brain is your lizard brain, right? Your lizard brain. You tell yourself I've prepared for this talk. I know my slides in and out. I know my audience. There's only five people in the room and they're all my colleagues and I like them. And Dude, I got this. This is no problem. You get into that room, you sit down, and you're like, ah! and you forget <laughs> what you're gonna say. And your palms are sweating. You're like, oh my god, I'm so nervous. You know, and um, those types of reactions are lizard brain reactions, right? Mm-hmm. Those are your sort of nervous system activating fight or flight hormones because you have some something in you that even though you know you're safe, your body signals danger. It's the weirdest yeah. thing, right? And that's like the human existence, right? There's, there've been studies out there that say that public speaking, like most people would rather have, have more of a fear of public speaking than they do of death. I mean, it's dramatic. Like most people hate, hate public speaking. And it's because their body goes into fight or flight whenever they have to do it. Even if they cognitively dolphin brain knows it's okay, I'm going to be fine. I'm safe. Still the body reacts. So if you can use your dolphin brain to inform your lizard brain that everything is actually okay and get your lizard brain to believe that, you can be calm in those situations. And in hypnosis, I like to think of it as basically you're using your imagination and you're using your your executive function of your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in order to inform the deeper structures in your brain to behave the way that is more functional for you in whatever goal you're trying to achieve, whether it's feel less pain or um, not be so anxious about the upcoming surgery or be able to speak in public or whatever it is. So um, there's also a downregulation at the thalamus under hypnosis, and there's a thought that you're basically blocking the um, ability for pain signals to really get registered in your brain. So there's some downregulation as well in the somato- somatosensory cortex under hypnosis when you experience pain. Um, And so they've done all kinds of studies where they, you know, either put someone's hand in cold water or shoot them with a laser. These are all, you know, healthy volunteers um, with and without (laughs) hypnosis. And they look at their brain under functional MRI. And we see all of this upregulation, downregulation, connectivity of various parts of the brain that gives us an idea of the mechanism. Now, everything in the brain is not only electrical, but also biochemical. And so, you know, this doesn't give the whole picture there's also some studies looking at um you know metabolites of dopamine in the brain that are increased in people who are more highly hypnotizable and so uh, my next study is going to be involving some of that looking at different uh, receptor mutations for um or sorry enzyme um, mutations for an enzyme that basically metabolizes dopamine
2: mm-hmm.
3: and so uh, if you look at the mutations. They can correlate sometimes with how sensitive someone is to pain, how much they how much opioids they need for surgery, and there may be some associations with hypnotizability as well. Um, so there's some chemical component too, which the brain always has a neurologic and chemical. It's all kind of all the same the same thing. Um, and so you know, there's there's also areas of the brain that are going to be doing you know some biochemical metabolism that that may be different under hypnosis as well. That kind of stuff is a little bit more tricky to study. We don't quite have the the sophisticated tools to say you know, this part of the brain released a lot more dopamine and it hit this part of the brain or metabolized faster. You know, We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there with, with our technology and our tools to be able to explain it even further. But um, right now, the functional connectivity uh, theories are, are sort of the best that we have that are reproducible, that really tell us that some parts of the brain are working together under hypnosis and highly hypnotizable people that just don't connect in that way for people who are not What's interesting about the anterior cingulate cortex, which is that subcortical structure in the brain that connects with the dolphin brain, that part is implicated in depression and also pain affect. Pain affect is like how much you suffer from the pain.
2: Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. So
3: if you're, you know... If you win a boxing championship, you just got punched in the face four times in a (laughs) row, right? It hurts. You don't even notice it because you're a champ. You know, you're getting your belt and you're, you know, you're up there. You see those guys on the ring holding the belt. Like, you know, they're elated. They couldn't be any happier. They couldn't possibly be feeling any less suffering in that moment they just got punched in the face. They're bleeding. They're, yeah. bruising, you know, swelling is horrible. Right. It's so grotesque and they're loving it. Right. So there's a part of your brain that decides whether or not you're suffering from pain. Right. That's if you get yeah. jumped on the subway and your face is bloody, <clears throat> you're not going to be, you know, on a victory lap <laughs> holding the belt above <laughs> you like, that was awesome. You know, As You're going to be scandalized and so upset and mad and angry. And, and that's going to hurt more because of that. And so pain affects are really interesting, you know, same thing with childbirth, right? After you have that baby and it's the happiest moment of your life, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't not hurt right now, Uh right? It just is different. It doesn't bother me. And so the degree of how much it bothers me is mediated by your anterior cingulate cortex. And that's one of the spots that lights up in connection with other places in the brain under hypnosis. And a lot of hypnosis does focus on sort of bringing the, um, the awareness to, yeah, I can notice that sensation, you know, that I may interpret as pain or pressure or whatever it is, but it doesn't have to bother me. I don't have to suffer from that. And it gives the control. My very, very favorite part about hypnosis is it gives that control to the patient, not to the doctor and not to the drug, but to the patient.
1: I'm blown away. I'm (laughs) I, I I like I guess my first I mean if I were listening to this podcast my first I mean how how long does it take to I mean is it like a five minute ordeal does it take thirty minutes I mean to get them into that hypnotic state
3: Yeah I mean hypnotizable Holy. people can take seconds I mean you'll yeah. yeah you'll see you know when I was shadowing Dr Spiegel and his clinic you know we patients would walk in and you know if they're highly hypnotizable and they are used to how it feels to be in hypnosis, it feels mm-hmm. like kind of a, it's kind of like a special relaxation state where you're not just sitting there with your eyes closed, but when you're under hypnosis, people who who do it say like, yeah, I, I know when I'm there, you know, okay. they almost almost like hmm. a location people identify. I know when I'm there um, is what you hear a lot. And so it feels like this state of calmness, okay. relaxation, it, you know, probably similar to meditation for a lot of people, okay. um, for people who meditate when they kind of feel like, yeah I'm in the zone i'm a little bit withdrawn from you know the the outside world right now and what's going on in my own thoughts I'm kind of in this spot um, where I can relax and um and so people would come into the office already you could kind of see in their body language and in their face that they're already in hypnosis when they come sit mm-hmm. down because they're coming to see their hypnotherapist you know and right. so they kind of have been probably on the way driving there they put themselves in in hypnosis It's really hypnosis is, is self hypnosis right you're putting yourself in that state if you're in the midst of some stressful situation, you're not going to accidentally slip into hypnosis, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part to, to, um, you know, have, have some, external control over you, you know, or if I tell you, Hey, Haas, I'm going <laughs> to hypnotize you to, you know, to give me all your money. And, you know, Wait, where's my wallet? <laughs> yeah. Like, you're, you know, it's not going to happen. Your, your mm. brain's going to say, I don't trust that this doesn't seem <laughs> right. And you're not going to let me hypnotize you. Okay. you know, your brain is in control of this for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, so people definitely do slip in and out of hypnosis in their daily life. People who are very, very like, highly hypnotizable, may be more suggestible during times or more easily um, pulled into hypnosis by con artists. I mean, a lot of con con artists use hypnotic language to get things hmm. done, um, you know, that are nefarious. But um, if you have a really highly hypnotizable person, they may be more of a target for being suggested into one thing or another that is not so good for them. And so it's good to be educated about it so that, because you can protect yourself if you know, like... I'm not listening to this language right now. I'm not going to get really absorbed in it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to listen peripherally, but I'm going to keep my cognitive brain really alert. You're not going to go into hypnosis. So, um, so I love that there's a self-protection mechanism against it. And I love that, um, you know, that it's something that people control on their own and you can put yourself in self hypnosis. Once you learn it from somebody who's trained like me or Dr. Spiegel, Mm -hmm. you can use it for all kinds of stuff for yourself. Use it to help you go to sleep. Use it to help you, um, you know, relax from some upcoming stress that you have going on. Um, I'll tell you the first thing I used it for when I learned hypnosis. So the, the, um, trainings are fantastic because you go, um, for four days and you practice hypnotizing each other. And I'm pretty highly (laughs) hypnotizable. And so by the end of this conference, they did a little bit of group hypnosis with our group too. Like as this conference gets longer and longer, you're going to find yourself more and more engaged and energized and usually conferences, you're more tired by the end. But mm-hmm. for this one, you're going to be amazed to, you know, when at the end you realize that you have so much enthusiasm to bring this back to your own practice, that nothing can stop you from, you know, going back and, and doing all this amazing hypnosis with your, you know, your patients. And, um, and man, they totally planted the seed because it was, it was totally right on. And so the first thing I did when I got back from that was I recorded a self hypnosis session for myself okay. to address my pager anxiety
2: hmm.
3: because I learned this as another thing I learned on the box <laughs> was that adrenaline rush when the alarm goes off, oh, when yeah. you're sound yeah. asleep yeah. and all of a sudden, boo-doo boo-doo boo, you know, and it's your, your little radio telling you, you have to get out of bed, get dressed in one and a half seconds, no time to go to the bathroom. Get to the rig. I hope you know where you put your keys when you fell asleep. Right. Mm-hmm. You got to get dressed, get in the rig and you know, pull your boots on mm-hmm. and then managed to listen to the radio this was before GPS right
0: where are we
1: going right. Was a right. map so
3: book and the I the map even
0: years out of the field I think that same tone would still probably cause the yeah. same reaction oh it's no like if it you were exactly. that pager you know tone John you'd probably yeah. the 91 that, that whatever that beeping noise beeping the vibrator yeah, the beeping. or the you know the, the old pager. The,
1: the, the ring downs that came through on the radio yeah, um, yeah. That, that just there's a specific beep the sound tone that, yeah mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so that, you know, I learned that that's something I definitely learned on the box was to, you know, jolt, awake, alert. And then you have to drive, right? And you're driving with your lights on, and so in the middle of the night it's all reverberating off of the signs, and so you're getting this like Feedback strobe light, which is not good for the brain. You're trying to drive and you're sound asleep, but not. And then you're, you, know, you have no idea what you're driving to. And then you've got Your this partner's sleep.
1: falling asleep. Like, dude, yeah, where your, am I going? Yeah, your partner's <laughs> trying to look at the map book and they're doing,
3: Yeah, Exactly. And so um, so then when I started on with my jobs and attending, it was the first time I'd ever had home call, like call oh, from home. Okay. And so I didn't have to get up and go into the hospital, but I had to wake up and staff patients with the residents. And especially when you're new, the, the new responsibility of attending is nothing that you even can imagine. Cause as a resident, you feel like you're doing everything. You feel like you're totally in charge of your patients. You have a lot of autonomy. You're, you know, you just see hundreds of patients every week. You just feel like you've really got it down and then you become an attending and you're like, Oh, there was backup the whole time. <laughs> 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 you don't appreciate it until you don't have it. And, um, and so when it's, when the buck stops with you, it's a whole different sense of responsibility and, mm-hmm. and stress comes with that. So the pager goes off and I have to wake up in the middle of the night, log into the computer and talk with the resident who saw the patient, hear the story, look through the chart myself. And these, these residents are great, but they're not surgical management hospitalists, they don't know what to look for the same way that I do. So I have to do my own like very thorough start from scratch, Hmm. you know, check of the patient before I even talk to them. So we do all that, you talk to them, you get the story, you find out how the patient looks, you know, find out what the physical exam was like, and then help the help the resident figure out a plan. And you know what to do next. And then oftentimes, you've ordered an EKG or something else. And you're laying there waiting for the result to come back. So you can't go to sleep till you, you know that page is coming in 30 minutes to wake up again and look at the EKG, right? Yeah. And so um, so this whole thing. And uh, and it's um, the anxiety of, of hearing that pager go off and getting startled awake was mm-hmm. just like the radio going off. Like your heart starts thumping and <laughs> you feel the adrenaline rush. You're like, I got to get up and perform, you know? And <laughs> and, um, and then it's really hard to go back to sleep because your, bra- your body is just jolted awake. And at that point you've got all this adrenaline running through you. You go to lay back down and run it through your head. Did I do everything right? And then, okay, I got to relax. I got to get up in two hours and actually go in and see the patient and have my day, you know? And, um, and it's something that really bothered all of my colleagues as well. So I got home and I recorded a session about how, you know, when I wake up to the pager sound, the first thought in my head, the only thing I can think of is, is curiosity. That's the only Mm -hmm. feeling I have is curiosity. How can I help this patient? What's going on in the hospital right. and how can I help? And um, and it totally immediately and forever changed the way I respond to the pager going off. It doesn't bother me anymore. Hasn't bothered me in three and a half years. Pager goes off. I wake up, huh, wonder what's up. It's usually something minor coming from a nurse or a resident. They just need a little help troubleshooting something with a patient or get up and staff a patient and can't wait to get back to sleep just relaxed and comfy and I'm so lucky I get to be in my bed and warm and I have a couple more hours to sleep and this is awesome and I drift right off I don't I have not had a sleepless night since then
1: do you wow. see other I mean do you see applications in the EMS world for uh, assisting because I, I I know this is going to be a huge problem for a lot of people that work you know especially the 24 hours <laughs> yeah
3: Yeah. And 24-hour shifts are hard. I mean, physiologically, I'll give a plug to one of my favorite books about uh, sleep is Mm -hmm. called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker.
2: Okay,
3: I read it recently because we don't learn a lot in medicine about sleep and it's so, so crucial. And 24-hour shifts are so hard on the body and the mind, um, the brain and the immune system and and moods and everything. Um, Yeah. I think there's anytime there's stress, there's a role for hypnosis, period. So I think in EMS, some roles would absolutely be controlling the the adrenaline rush, calming back down afterwards. Um, of course, a lot of our colleagues in EMS have stress-related symptoms, you know, as well. And then that sometimes can go down the road of compensatory behaviors and, you know, things that aren't so healthy partying on the weekends when you're off to kind mm-hmm. of numb your, you know, your situation, all I, that kind I of stuff. I don't stuff.
2: party care. Yeah. <laughs> we'll no, never, no. Yeah. never,
3: never, yeah. never. Yeah. Um, but you know, it is,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it
3: is, um, it is a lot of stress and it, it is something that, you know, if there's anything anxiety related and, and um, especially that, that automaticity, that automatic reaction to a situation, that feels threatening to your body Mm -hmm. that isn't actually a threat. It's just a perceived threat, like getting startled awake from sleep to do your job. You know, it's Mm -hmm. obviously not a threat. Um, but if your body perceives it that way, hypnosis could potentially help.
1: Yeah. I think there was a – I read a book on fear because, I mean, we're very bad at, at gauging and assessing fear. And they did a lot of talking about your lizard brain versus your more complex brain. So Dolphin th- brain. The dolphin brain, yes.
3: <laughs> Come on. I was a dolphin trainer for five years. It has to be the dolphin brain.
1: <laughs> what do, um, when you approach a patient to tell them this, mm-hmm. what is the typical reaction?
3: You know, most people are actually quite receptive. I counted up all the people I spoke to. I spoke to about 300 people to Mm -hmm. enroll 64 into my trial. And so um, most of them were... the the ones that didn't enroll, most of them were in another pain trial. So they were excluded from mine. Okay. Um, and that trial had a lot of funding and it was being done by this really important, um, anesthesiologist. And so I wasn't going to be stealing his patients, you know, <laughs> uh, for my trial. So I kind of had anyone that they didn't capture, um, mm-hmm. you know, that were available to me. So I talked to a lot of people about it and, um, and almost everyone was at least you know, interested in it. And they'd either heard of it. Oh, I had a friend who used that to quit smoking, or that's really cool. I've read about that a little bit, or I had no idea that was a thing, but it sounds cool. Tell mm-hmm. me more, you know, so uh, most people are receptive. And when you look at the the published statistics on attitudes about hypnosis, that they have done studies on this. Um, actually, most people think as an alternative Type procedure, alternative medicine, kind of mm-hmm. intervention. A lot of people, um, most, the majority of people, are interested and would want to try it for something like surgical pain. Um, I think it's probably been helped a little bit by this whole situation with opioids,
2: right? Because
3: mm. people recognize that the standard of care is not necessarily the least harmful way to go; it's just the standard of care, mm-hmm. and um, that piques a lot of people's interest in, well, what else could we try? Right. <laughs> you know, um, certainly piqued mine.
1: Does anyone ever reference? There was a Scrubs episode where they did hypnosis. Did any of your patients reference that?
3: I think maybe one. A couple right. people referenced "Get Out" though. Did Get you out? see that movie?
1: No. Oh, yeah,
3: that was all really scary, and it's a it's a horror movie about hypnosis. Really. And, um, and it came out right when my trial opened and I thought, okay, Uh, well, that's just back up my career right now. (laughs) (laughs) So much for that, but luckily not, not a lot of my patient Mm -hmm. demographics saw that movie. Um, so. Yeah, but anyway, so you know, most people bring up, oh, is that like the you know Vegas show, right? Like, like or a the chicken the, thing, yeah, the chicken thing. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, and I say, well, yes, that's stage hypnosis, <laughs> medical <laughs> hypnosis is is, is different. And, um, and then I just give them the brief blurb about it, like all the stuff we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives you an ability to control a part of your brain from the automatic reactions and also the way that you experience mm-hmm. painful sensations or other symptoms during your hospital stay. So it really kind of gives you the control yeah. to be able to manage that in a different way with with no side effects from the hypnosis itself. Um, and it can reduce your, um, potentially reduce your your medication use, right. um, which is something I can say now that I couldn't say for the trial, right? Exactly. Cause now I have my results. I can say, <laughs> yes, this actually may do this for you. Um, you know, cause we've tested a perioperative script that was the same for each patient. Hmm. So now I can give that to my patients and say, you know, I did a trial with this and it was, it was effective for some people to lower their opioid use and help them feel better. If you'd like to try it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and I do hypnosis, uh, with patients occasionally sort of, um, off the cuff with personalized sessions and recorded on their phones. They can listen to it later. Okay. Um, and that, that has been a really fun part of my practice too.
0: Nice. I'm not sure if it's just in TV shows that I've seen it in, but you, you would hear about the people that I don't want any anesthesia. I need to go into surgery and I going to use hypnosis to get through the surgery. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Is that not real?
3: It is possible and it is real. It is rare. Okay. And it is probably not going to end up being one of those widespread practices at most medical centers. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but the, I actually know somebody from the Professional Hypnosis Society circles who's had a, I believe it was a gallbladder removed and a hernia repair with just self hypnosis. Wow, so, yeah. that's
0: incredible! Just your ability to control your own mind to block those signals or revert those signals of pain
1: yeah. into.
3: Yeah.
0: That, yeah, and, and I'm guessing
1: when you do, uh, it was the active MRI you said, right?
3: Functional, functional MRI. MRI. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that kind of takes away because I wanted to ask if there's a placebo effect to this, but by using the functional MRI, you can say this is not a placebo effect, there's actual neurons firing that we can.
3: Well, oh, since you mentioned it, um, I'm so- <laughs> one of one of the things I really love to to study and talk about is the placebo effect. Okay. So the placebo effect is is a cousin of hypnosis in a way. It is a biochemical, neurological, electrophysiologic it's a real thing. It's the brain. I mean, the brain, anything any thought that you have, any feeling that you have is biochemistry and neurology. It's all real just like your digestion is real you know um it's all just an organ doing a job with biochemistry so if you have a placebo effect for example for a pain medication so it requires some experience with the medication you know believing that mm. it works for you okay having had it worked before right so there's the conditioning aspect of the placebo response there's also a trust aspect you have to kind of trust that the person giving it to you is real and there's a ritual aspect so i mean this comes from um alia Kroom's research she runs the mind body lab at stanford and does a lot of work on placebo and I love her work. So um, those are kind of the three, um, the ritual part is like, I had the the orange pill bottle, and I unscrewed the top, mm. and I got a glass of water, you know, there's some ritual to medication taking that also um, sort of impacts the placebo response, and is a part of it. And so if you sneak somebody a medication, they're not going to have a placebo response from it. Right, right? So, right exactly. Um, so it's all it's all part of that expectation. And so, um, so similarly, for for um, Well, first of all, I'll go into the, some biochemistry of placebo for pain.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: If you give somebody a pain medication and they have a placebo response for that pain medication because they've been prior had prior conditioning for it, they know that when I take five milligrams of oxycodone, I feel less pain, mm-hmm. right? And then you give them a placebo oxycodone. They think it's an oxycodone. You've told them it's an oxycodone, but it's just a sugar pill. Same milligrams. They take it. They will feel pain relief from that. That's the placebo response, right? Mm-hmm. That's like the definition of it. Um, what's really interesting is that, if, in between them being conditioned that this medication works for me and getting the actual sugar pill, you give them naloxone, which everyone on the box knows what narcan <laughs> oh, yeah. is right? um you give them a dose of naloxone and you sneak the naloxone into them so that they don't know that they got it, that next placebo oxycodone won't work. what's up with that?
0: That's weird, whoa,
3: yeah, so Could it be that when you take a medication that activates your opioid receptors and you believe it's going to work, or if you get a medication that you think is an opioid medication that hits your opioid receptors that you think is going to work, that your brain releases endorphins, which activate your opioid receptors receptors, blocked by naloxone?
2: Oh,
3: that is crazy. <laughs> I know. I love the placebo effect. So there's a biochemical pathway like that for every placebo effect. So if it's, you know, if it's the serotonin receptors that undansetron or Zofran, one of the common anti-nausea mm-hmm. medications, hits, and you take a placebo for nausea, those receptors are activated. So you can basically auto-populate your brain's receptors with various intrinsic chemistry from your brain based on your thoughts and expectations that influence how your body works and feels that's the placebo response so when you say is it just placebo
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you think we'll get to a point where we the mind you could say i believe this line of salt is actually cocaine and you could snort salt and then feels of you under cocaine do you think we'll get to that point with our brains
3: I mean, yeah, I think we're already there. I think that's what oh. we're talking about when it comes to, like, so they, they've they done studies where they um they put a bunch of people in a bar, like in a pub type setting
2: uh-huh.
3: and let them, you know, drink and party and hang out. And um, gosh, I wish I could point you to the actual study because I just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. It was all non- non-alcoholic alcohol and they didn't tell mm. them that. And they let them, you know, just have a ball and take shots and get all goofy Um and they – everyone was acting drunk, disinhibited, uncoordinated. When they actually tested them on a driving simulation, they drove as if they were drunk <laughs> because they thought they were. And in the in the social setting where everyone was feeding off of each other and no one knew it was fake alcohol, so we're there. The, the human brain is there.
0: Well, the I, big thing with that too, do they even really know why alcohol gets you intoxicated? And the same thing with – um.
3: Um, I mean, yes. In as far as the metabolites of alcohol suppressing and activating certain parts of your brain mm-hmm. and stuff like that, yeah, there. I don't know them all offhand, but yeah, they have okay. elucidated those pathways. Um, how it, it affects your cerebellum quite a bit, which is why it affects your physical coordination, your trunkal stability, your you know hand-eye coordination, your balance when you stand and walk, things like that. So, um, you know, because we've we've had alcohol around for so long, and we've seen mm-hmm. so many health issues from, um, over, you know, excessive alcohol that we've kind of figured out those pathways a while ago. So yeah, okay. there are definitely, there is some science behind that. Yeah.
0: Interesting. I, I, dude, this is so cool, man. I'm just trying to try and think now, do
1: you still have a hangover? Well, you could you your hangover.
3: That's a good question. I'm going to will
1: I, myself not
0: to be hungover.
3: I don't remember if they, if they looked okay. at hangover symptoms in those, in those folks.
0: That'd be interesting. That would be interesting.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how long that effect lasts if you actually don't, you know, if you forget about it, or if you, you know, I don't know. Maybe it depends on the person and how much they ruminate on what they did the night before. (laughs) I have no idea. Uh, But yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they followed that up in the study. Wow. Yeah.
1: This is so cool. But we got a hard stop at the top of the hour. I think you got to come back seriously.
3: Yes. Seriously. I, mean, we I have
1: a hundred more questions. Yeah, we have a hundred more questions. There, there, I have, we have a list of notes that we, we didn't even get to a couple other topics that yeah. we were going to Especially discuss. during academic studies. I say still. academic studies. Finding yeah. those yeah.
0: two groups. Does it do yeah. more harm if you have a medication that's really going to help people to have that control group and if that can, can carry over to multiple studies. Yeah. That was my big thing I always wanted to know. If you have a medication for Parkinson's, yeah. you have to have a control group when mm-hmm. you're doing that mm-hmm. trial. If you're looking at the same thing with a new medication that comes out, can you still use that old control group or must you use a new control group for every single new study?
3: Um, so every study is a little bit different. So the answer is yes to all of those options. So you can um, you can pit a new medication or treatment against standard of care, which may include some old treatment that worked at least a little bit to mm-hmm. see if, if one is superior or non-inferior to the other. Um, that's done all the time. Okay. Um, or you can try it against nothing and just see what kind of the absolute value is of, of um, the medication, the new medication itself. Um, so, you know, for my trial, we didn't exclude, we didn't take any opioids away from anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole point was to mm-hmm. see if people would happen to ask for and use less opioids if they had had hypnosis um, and had hypnosis available to them. And so we did standard of care plus. Hypnosis in one group and standard of care plus no hypnosis in the other group. Okay, and so that's definitely a way you can do it.
0: Yeah, because I always would watch these documentaries on things with these, you know, terrible health conditions that they have new medication for, and you know, one's control group gets sugar pill, the other one gets actual medication, and then you have great results of the medication. Control group, nothing changes for them, so it's so hard to tell the people. Sorry that you didn't get this medication. You know, you're know you going to get sicker, but you helped out everything in general. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not going to be one that's, of those hardest things to say. So yeah. I was wondering if you just have that. You can just use one control group that, for a previous test, and that way everyone can get the new medication. If that's something that's used.
3: Well, so they, they do cross people over sometimes. If there's a clear benefit, some trials will have a midpoint uh, analysis of the data. And if it's clear, because the opposite can happen too. A new yeah. drug can hurt people, absolutely. right? Mm. And so that's the whole point of the experiment. So informed consent is absolutely... 100% the most important mm-hmm. thing in clinical research. Absolutely. You have to make sure the person understands you have a random chance of getting this treatment. And we don't know if this treatment is effective. That's why we're doing the study. I think I said that 50 times in my, you know, <laughs> for each, each patient coming in, you know, cause you do, number one, you don't want to tell people, you know, like this, this treatment, this hypnosis for pain relief has worked in a lot of other settings, a lot of other trials, it hasn't been tested, you know, by me at Stanford on knee replacements. Hmm. Um, You know, so that's what we want to see if it works for this. Okay. And so I can't promise that it will work if you get hypnosis, um, or that it would help you. But that's what we're trying to find out. Okay, there's a chance that, you know, that if you don't get hypnosis, that it could have helped you. But you know, that's, that's sort of the cost of enrolling in a, in a trial Mm -hmm. is that you could get randomized to the control group and then you potentially could miss out on a benefit. You could also miss out on a harm and be very happy. Um, but that's, you know, that's why people who are, um, you know, who are volunteering for these clinical trials are the backbone of modern medicine and deserve Mm -hmm. our reverence and respect because it's, it really is, um, up to, up to the person to decide if they're willing to take that risk. And that's tricky because with experimental stuff, you can't even get a guarantee from the doctor that you know what's going to happen to right. you. Mm-hmm. You're taking this leap of faith that, for the good of science and for the potential to maybe benefit, sure, let's give it a try. You know, and that's a that's a brave thing to do.
1: Right. Wow. Right. Dr. Kittle, please, please do come back. Absolutely. We, we have a lot so much fun. more. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. You're
2: welcome. There is
0: John, I can sum up this entire episode in an emoji. Really? Yeah. You know the one where it's like an explosion coming out of the head because the mind's blown? Perfect. That's it. That's all you need. You know, I love when you don't tell me what you're going to say during these
1: things because I'm like, where are you going with this, buddy?
0: (laughs) That's it. That was so cool. I, uh, I can't wait to have her back. Seriously. I can't. I mean... Um. Yeah. After we um, stopped the taping, um, she hung out for a few more minutes, and we went down about ten more pathways. Right. Of just about everything: uh, academics to surgery to how do you even write a research paper? The ethics involved, yeah. funding, and it's all interesting. I
1: again. I can not it's it's weird the entire time during the episode, and i I knew we had a hard stop today, and I think sometimes that's good so people can kind of digest initially yeah, we what we we're could talking have about
0: gone, yeah, scary longer with this one. I think it's the <laughs> only way to put it um, I think this' could have been a four hour conversation yeah, easily no, this is kind of one of those things where. You know, you're at a bar having a conversation like this, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you realize it's five hours later, and oh, you're yeah. shutting down. Yeah. And that's how engaging um, Dr. Kittle was. And totally. So passionate about everything that yeah. she wanted to do. Just have this drive to yeah. help people. It's incredible. Let, it,
1: let us know. Shoot us an email uh, offtheboxpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you like this episode or what you want us to ask next, next time,
0: because this is, uh, to me, this is fascinating. Absolutely. A placebo effects. Had no idea. I thought it was just. Uh, yeah, you know, oh yes, pills going to work, and then your yeah. brain thinks it works. But actually, like, change like chemistry and receptors. Yeah. And do you think uh I was
1: thinking about it? I didn't want to ask her at this point, but do you think you could be hypnotized? Because I think I would fight it. I don't know. Uh,
0: it's too much going on in my head. Yeah, I think it's just uh, there's always too much going on up there. I don't think I can. I. um and then bring it up, I probably should have during the um, podcast where, you know, I mentioned in college, my mm-hmm. freshman year, that's one of those uh, freshman orientation kind of things, get all the freshmen together at Chico. Yeah. Kind of um, brought a hypnotist in, and all the people mm-hmm. went up on stage and stuff like that. So afterwards, he said, uh, Dr. Kittle was talking about his real business after that, where he said, Hey, oh. you know what? If you guys want, come in tomorrow morning. I do a free little seminar. We can do some hypnosis stuff that will help you, you know, with your studying, with oh. remembering times and stuff like that. So I was interested, so I went in. Okay. Yeah. I'm surprised it's 9 in the morning. I'm surprised I made it. But I didn't make I was, it. I wouldn't have made it. No. Yeah. <laughs> Normally. Um. <laughs> the only thing you did
1: at 9 in the morning at Chico State. What? <laughs> <One time.
0: laughs> and freshman year, accidentally signing up for uh, calculus. Oh, yeah. You, okay, yeah. You don't need better freshman year. Yeah, yeah, but calculus was hard because it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Hey, if you want, I'll teach you derivatives after we get done recording this. I, I had three semesters of calculus. I'm good. I can reteach you. Well, thank God. It's it. probably needed. Um, <laughs> so I I went in. I went in with a buddy of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sat down, and it just didn't work for me. Just too much going on in my mind. They tell okay. you to kind of relax, clear your mind. And then as soon as someone tells me to clear my mind, it's like, oh, what does a clear mind do? Is it clear, clear? Is it clear like glass? Huh. I wonder if you can really actually clear your mind. I wonder what's going on for lunch today. And it just goes down these stupid rabbit holes and pathways. It's just – but my buddy that was right next to me, he was like that. He was out. No. Yeah. Just completely out. Yeah. And I'm sitting there like with my eyes closed, just kind of like – and at some point, you just know it's not going to work kind of thing like a few minutes later and it's like – it's kind of rude just to walk out like do i just have to sit here for the next 15 minutes with my eyes closed just like bored out of my mind Right. yeah so it didn't work for me um i don't know maybe dr kittle can i think it's worth revisiting me.
1: i think when when she first brought it up i was like there's no way but as she started talking about the pathophysiology of it i'm like well and now i'm like i want because now i'm like oh my mind can be better than this i want to be able to control but that's what myself. i was thinking too like yeah
0: my mind should be able to control like have some kind of a hybrid dolphin lizard baby. Yeah. That's immediately came to my mind when the two were communicating. Maybe that's
1: part of her psychology that she's like, these two bozos, they're going to be like alpha males, like, you can't hypnotize me. And like, no, now you can. Now I want to do
0: it. Well, oh, maybe that's maybe she's laying the groundwork for the uh, susceptibility of hypnotism. I'm not getting hypnotized on the podcast. I'm not doing that. I'll tell you that. Pre show? Uh, she said "She said the test that she does is only about 10 minutes long and can be broken down to like five minutes.
1: I'll tell you what. If her episode gets 500 downloads or more before – oh
0: 500.
1: 500. If
0: it gets 500 or more before uh, she comes on next, then I will do it pre-show. Well, you know what? Well, the big thing is I think that's a high number and it's a very lofty goal. I think we need to bring it down a little bit. Just remember because this hypnotist – Hypnotism is not a parlor trick. We're not going to make you walk around and cluck like a chicken. She is very professional. This is what she does. She's mm-hmm. not going to lower her level to do something um, as a parlor trick, I oh, guess you would yeah, say. Yeah,
1: yeah. She is not going to do that. Like, However, my partner in crime and my co-host, on I would this never.
0: Show. <laughs> I, I would never do something like. Well, okay, John, what time is lunchtime? Uh, it's at one thirty every day. Every day. Every day. You can't stop that. Nope. So, would you be susceptible? Would your dolphin brain tell your lizard brain that maybe you feel nauseous every day at one thirty? I hate you so much. I'm going to murder you. <laughs> this is ridiculous. And how incredible would that be? I that think would it's, not be I incredible. Think it's, I think it's a leap into this scientific endeavor. Well, after that, then we get her colleague that is doing research in placebos. <laughs> and then you could take a sugar pill – At 129, anticipating the nausea (laughs) and have the placebo effect help with that nausea, and then you can eat lunch. Wasn't she very clear about implied consent? Not implied consent. Some sort of important consent. I'm sure you would sign off on this, John. Ah, Are you going to sue your friend? Well,
1: neither you or I have any money, so it's not really important to uh, sue either one of us.
0: No, and you're
1: not going to sue her for doing anything. No, she's my friend. Yeah, <laughs> just so, like just like Doctor Silken and Doctor Law, go back and do the ten episode challenge.
0: Okay. Oh, did you, you have to put her name up on the friend list.
1: Uh, that's, well, she's under the board. Yeah, I'll put her on the friends list. Okay. I have three friends now. Three out of twenty is not bad.
0: I wonder if we should do a revisitation with a lot of these people. Like, oh, I know. I maybe I can go on a road show with just the handheld recorder kind of a thing, <laughs> and then just walk up to someone we interviewed before, uh, Doctor De Carlo. You had a really great episode. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm doing some polling right now. Are you friends with John Hospin? Do you consider him a friend? And then maybe <laughs> we just do like an outtake kind of a thing. And who knows? He might get some funny responses. Oh, God. The truth might hurt, though. Well, I mean, it might be something like a who? The... That one might hurt. a l- That will sting a little bit. <laughs> that, would sting a little that would sting a little bit.
2: <laughs>
1: because um, I think Dr. DiCarlo, he'd be like, oh, you mean that guy that keeps coming up and saying – he liked my podcast. That like, guy is kind of weird. Yeah, not Doctor Carlo.
0: He'd be talking about me. That's true. Or yeah. I, I, I wonder how Mark sees you. Uh, Mark Brown, our fantastic CNO over at Good Samaritan Hospital. I like to think that
1: Mark sees me as a mentor, coach, confidant, maybe. Um, you know, just somebody who kind of guides the hospital. That's, that's like Jesse said, Dr. Kittle said, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the mind thinks what it wants to think. That is true. I've planted that seed. Anyway, who do we got coming up next week? I'm excited next week. I know.
0: I, mean, I, I know you are.
2: I'm always excited. <laughs> you You're are. such
0: cool people. Um, Dr. Lee's next week. Dr. Lee's week. coming next week. So MFM, yeah. uh, Truthfully, I need to be doing a little more research okay. into this a little bit because there's so many cool things that MFM right. physician can treat. Um, and it's really—I mean, she goes after these really high-risk pregnancies. Yeah. How do you even do that? You just have this thing that's not really a thing yet inside of a body. Yeah. That's essentially a parasite because it can't survive on its own. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. And then it turns <laughs> into a crotch goblin. How do you treat this thing inside of someone <laughs> else's body without hurting either one? Now, you're going to tell Dr. Lee that it's a parasite. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns into something worse when it comes out sometimes. I like you said crotch goblin. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a okay. blessing. Um, anyway, so yeah, next week, stay tuned. We have Dr. Lee and we've got Who, who, of,
0: who do we have on our wish list coming up here? Wish list, okay, or so, maybe even service lines. What, what are we thinking?
1: Um, we talked a little bit ago about somebody from EMS. I think we want to. I want to get back um, EMS leadership. I think. I think that'll be interesting to hear about. Uh, I'm still going to name drop Doctor Zankman. I think, honestly, in summary serious do. I think that's such an important topic. Is I do too. And, we'll yeah. start.
0: We'll start prodding a little bit more, pushing the button a little bit, yeah. to see if we can get her on. Um, just so many great conversations we've had with her inside mm-hmm. the hospital. Um, learning about her service line and palliative care. Right. Um, such a difficult topic, but just hearing her explain it, mm-hmm. um it almost puts you at ease a little bit more. Right. And how much work she puts into it, and there's different cultures in this area, oh, yeah. and sidestepping all of those things. Yeah. Um, now she's incredible. Um, what about radiology? Like... Imaging or interventional radiology? Imaging.
1: Imaging. That's right. I see where you're going with this. Uh, We talked to uh, Dr. Lean. Dr. Lean has uh, agreed to be on. we got to schedule him, but he's going to come on. So he promised me.
0: So (laughs) I initially (laughs) – I I like to do a lot of feedback for EMS providers. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to learn how to read CTs better, x-rays and things like that. So when I give – Like
1: a 30-minute –
0: Well, that's what I thought. So I initially went up to uh, one of our trauma
2: physicians (laughs) and I said,
0: um, you know, I'm really excited. I have access to this stuff now. You don't have to grab it for me anymore. And that was a breath of fresh air for him. Just like, oh, good. You know, because that's, you know, more time that's away from, you know, his research, patient care and running trauma department. (laughs) So like Garrett coming up and asking for an x-ray and then asking how to read that x-ray. So I said, You know, and since I'm going to be getting all this now, I'm going to have Dr. Lean um, teach me how to read these. (laughs) So he just kind of looks down a little bit, looks back up, shaking his head a little bit. Pretty sure people go to school for years to do that. Well, I have a lot of faith in Dr. Lean and I think he can teach it to me in about 30 minutes. 30 minutes? I, I would allow an hour in case you have questions. Yeah, maybe some snacking as well. Ooh, he did have lunch last time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Trauma Physicians kind of shakes his head a little bit. Okay, if you say so. So, of course, John, you were with me. We went to see Dr. Lean. I was. And, you know, when Dr. Lean said, you know what? Um, you know, Trauma doesn't think that you can do this, but, yeah, you know, he said it takes years to learn all this stuff, but I think you could teach me in about 30 minutes. What did John, what did he say?
1: Dr. Lean unequivocally said he could. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm excited. You're going to be a radiologist by the time you're done with that. One 30-minute course and some snacking, and you're going to be Dr. Cords. I'm excited. I, then I will get to interview you on the podcast as my service line expert.
0: That'll be interesting. A good one.: Yeah. We'll start with fractures. those are really easy for me to read, <laughs>
1: especially like
0: the fully broken ones. We'll play a game called "Is This Broken?" <laughs> All right, enough rabbit holes.) Um, I'm excited. We'll see you all next week.
1: Yeah, everyone. Thank you so much for 20 great episodes. Here's to 20 more.
0: Off the Box was produced by me, Steve Cooper. Our amazing artwork was provided by Dodge Design Studios and a big thanks to San Jose's very own NFM for this week's music.